don't sweat the technique. The Protect Your Neck Podcast. Top five two-way technical battles in MMA with Dan Albert. Don't sweat the technique. As per usual, we went deep into the technical back and forth in fights that span throughout the MMA spectrum. So, strap in. Let's trace the hits and check the file. Let's see who bit the dot tech the style. I flipped the script so it can't get filed. At least not now, it'll take a while. I changed the pace to complete the beat. I dropped the bass to MCs get weak. For every road they trace, it's a scar they keep. Cause when I speak, they freak to sweat the technique. I made my debut in 86 With a melody and a president's mix And now I stay on target and refuse to miss And I still make hits for beats Parties, clubs, and cars and jeeps My underground sound vibrates the streets MCs wanna beef then I play for keeps When they sweat the technique What is up you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast And I'm your host, Dan Tom Analyst is where you can find over at MMAJunkie.com But on this year's program the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA. That's what we're going to do here today, tonight, whenever you're listening to this, because there is uh, no fights, and no, I'm not complaining, because uh, uh, we need weeks off, and we need more, and, uh, you know, instead of taking a break, uh, maybe like I should, I couldn't help but getting a guest on here to help me break down, uh, you know, some, some past fights, as we like to do on these off weeks, like to kind of revisit visit history, you know, come up for air uh, in the few occasions that the UFC schedule will allow you to, much less the rest of the MMA universe. So I brought on at Typewriting DA from Twitter, my man Dan Albert from thefightsite.com. What's up, Dan? And uh, we'll talk about this topic shortly, but thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm ha- happy to be here, you know? Uh, yeah, man. I mean, it's. I think between, you know, this episode alone, we should be able to give the audience, if they're you know, they're hungry for fights this weekend. I think we should give them some good ones to go back on. And even ones that maybe you're more familiar with, as we'll get to this topic, as I'm going to throw it to you to set it up, Dan. Uh, it also could allow you to revisit fights that your favorite, some of your favorites, that right? You think you know, like the back of your hand. But when you kind of look at it from a technical eye, or um, if it's a judging show, you're looking at things from a judging eye, you know, with, with the updated criteria, as we all try to educate ourselves. It can be really fun to go back and look at some of these. So, Dan, um, tell me what you think about that as you set up the topic of what we're what we're here to talk about today. So, the site I write for is thefightsite.com. What we do is we're kind of a multidiscipline, kind of little niche site, whereupon we try to look at dis- different disciplines of combat sports. And MMA tends to be the biggest like marketer for our site's traffic right now. And um, most of our staff does uh, specialize as, like, say, MMA analysts, including myself. Um, We're all big fans of sport. We all have our own little hipsterisms and whatnot. But the the thing about us is that we not only want to um, elevate understanding the sport, we're trying to give fighters credit not just for their will and heart and whatnot, but also for kind of the intelligence and skill they show in the ring. And... So I, today's topic is kind of all about that kind of like scientific aspect. So this is a personal fascination of mine, but I like to understand not just like the ins and outs of how fighters work, but I like to see how they match up with each other. And especially fighters who try to outthink, of e- outthink each other just as much as they're trying to outfight each other. And so 
there's a term for this that uh, I, I think our site founder, Kyle McLaughlin, a boxing historian, out, a.k.a. now known as um, a movie and football obsessed, you know, like hipster on Twitter. Yeah, um, Kyle. yeah. Kyle, Kyle's great. But um, he he coins them two way technicals. And what you what we mean by that is they usually involve two aspects. They're basically um, fighters two well-matched skilled fighters um who are trying to outthink and outsmart each other with their respective game plans but eventually at some point the fight actually t- turns into a bit of a firefight or it gets really actiony just as much as there's thought involved and so they're technical there's full of adjustments there's full of little like constant shifts of momentum and there's little narratives happening. Um, the the thing about two-way technicals, though, is they're not quite wars, even though wars themselves can have, like, technical aspects. So fights like Aldo Mendez or, like, Whitaker Romero, too, specifically, like, they're very, very high-level fights in of themselves, but they're more kind of leaning on that war side, too, as much as they are technical. So this subject is kind of more of, like, the step below that, where it's like, it is kind of action-y still, but it still has a lot of um, uh, just quality of skill involved. And, and to be honest, that line between like where it becomes this all-out firefight and um, like still being skilled, I, I think Dan and I can speak for ourselves here when we say kind of figuring out the grounds for that's a little hard because there's maybe like one or two picks on mine, for instance, that kind of veer into to that but the whole point of today though is to not just appreciate maybe fights that you've seen before maybe fights you haven't seen before but kind of break down like our impressions of them little narratives we've seen in like skills little tactic observations of what's going on and and just kind of appreciate fighters not just for being really really like um capable in the cage from like a gritty standpoint but also from like you recognize kind of the science behind what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. And it, that that's kind of like my goal, because once you learn kind of how to do this, um, I feel like certain fights that you may not have enjoyed before get very, very interesting in their own way, because they make you think about fighters in different ways. And that's kind of the topic in a nutshell. I think you explained that way better than I could have explained that. And uh, you're right, and some of my picks... Um, maybe toward the end especially, definitely veer into that territory. Um, however, I would argue that that's fine, though, too, because mm-hmm. in rewatching and I, off the top, um, perhaps some that you mentioned, perhaps some that you didn't as well, I omitted a lot of real obvious ones, uh, a lot of fights that are, A, obvious, talked about a lot by me, and especially if there's people that can talk about it better. Like in Aldo Mendez 2, for example, it would have been completely forgivable on anyone's list, um, but, uh, you know, like... Ryan Wagner, you know, one of the best MMA analysts for sure, um, explains it so well, uh, as well as you know, a lot of people on your side have waxed about that fight, obviously, um, and have written about plenty of others very well, better than I could ever do it. Uh, so uh, for, for a lot of mix of those reasons, I'm just going to say off the top, uh, both classic examples and newer examples, there are going to be some that I omitted, and as I explained to Dan kind of before we started, um, I'm, you know, I went especially hipster with this, you know, maybe a hipster topic, so maybe no surprise, but I tried to go more hipster with this list because there are so many fights that I realize I talk about a lot, and I still want to talk about them on this podcast because, again, 
it allows you to appreciate fights you a already appreciate and are already popular on a different level and b if they are the fights that within the context that do veer into the war like dan said um i still feel like it's a, it's a it's a, a very valuable exercise to look at it through this lens because it allows you to appreciate the stuff that fueled the war that was more than the war right um, back to your initial spirit and what a lot of you guys mm-hmm. in the fight site try to do, which is I, well, I appreciate you guys. So, Dan, well, no, one, issue, no issues. Well, one thing here, but go ahead. Yeah, one, one thing I'll also add is um, if you've ever followed my work or read some of my work or any of my peers' work, know that we do use a lot of like little technical terms to describe things. Um, and if you're listening to this and not quite sure what we're talking about, don't feel bad. It takes a while to learn these things. I speak from experience as well on it and i'm sure dan does too but the whole idea is i will try to like kind of simplify things a bit to kind of make them a little more accessible as much as i can i'll also like give you examples of like where you could look for this in the actual fight itself but um for my pick specifically i gave myself a restriction that i can't have the same fighter more than once just to add variety because otherwise certain fighters would appear multiple times on this list but that's mostly just a self-imposed criteria just for the sake of variety. More of my examples are a little more recent, but the point of this, again, is to just kind of um, enjoy the kind of the technical aspects to just... So it's a real nerdism kind of pod, you know? Because, you know, you got to mock all the nerds. Hey, man, uh, obviously I'm one at heart, I'm one at face. Uh, <laughs> so you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not offending me here. And like I said, this is the one to be... Not to worry about being wordy, and as you talked about your writing, another reason why I like it, because uh, like myself, uh, although I, I'm very much encouraged to go the other way, uh, unfortunately, uh, and fortunately, because I would just prattle on, and, and I still don't have the writing skills now, I sure as shit didn't have it when I wrote a bit longer, but I still very much appreciate the longer form, the attention to detail, and that's something you're really good at, um, that's why uh, you, you do the things you, you do, and you're good at those things that you do. Uh, you don't just do them. So appreciate you, man. Let's get on with it here. So we're going to be doing top five two-way technical battles, two-way technicals, um, if you will. Uh, we're going to go from five to one as the usual format. It's going to be like a tennis game. There could and, 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 and maybe some crossover here. I'm guessing one, 1. 1.2, 1.5. We're trying to put a little average on it. Uh, if there is, we'll double dive, of course. We'll state where uh, you know it was in our lists. Um, and uh, we'll go to the listener list after that. Anything that the listener list or our list miss, of course, we will hit in honorable mentions. Uh, and if we still miss it, well, then feel free to hit me up at DanTomMMA. Don't uh, hit, you know, follow typewriting DA, but don't criticize him. Give me the shit for it. Uh, give him a follow. Uh, add the PYM podcast on all social platforms to contribute to future lists. And uh, if you're in the comment section on YouTube, appreciate you guys um, listening. Give the video a like. Subscribe, Daniel Tom MMA. I appreciate it. I, 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 I want to say I'm close to hitting 500, but the last time I said that, I, I think I've actually like lost subscribers since then. So uh, if you all want to hit that subscribe button, trying to get better with the audio issues, and a lot of you commented that, uh, made some adjustments on this one. Hopefully it's sounding a bit better. But the audio version, I will say, usually always sounds better, and you get like a cool uh, intro music, which I don't know what I used. Maybe I'll use something that we talk about from this episode. That'll be ringing us in. So we'll see. Um, Dan... After my wordy intro, let's let you go first, man. Five sure. to one. Uh, you start the match. Uh, not that it's a match, but you know what I'm saying. What made mm-hmm. your number five pick? So my number five was actually mentioned by your last guest, uh, Chris R. 
because I can't pronounce his last name. I feel bad for that. Great artist. Uh, is uh, Chris Weidman versus Leota Machida. And this one's a very, very interesting fight if you're asking kind of their goals. So Weidman is um, one of the finer pressure and uh, takedown artists the middleweight division has seen. And his whole idea is basically he wants to pressure you through little tools to get you to that and and basically control you there or to get you down on the floor consistently. Um, Machida's a really interesting fighter to talk about because he he's what we would call kind of janky as a striker, as in like some of his punching and kicking form is kind of off and not necessarily the sort that you would do. Like many of his punches are very looping. Sometimes he can kind of take himself out of stance consistently, but he makes up for it by the fact that he's really, really unpredictable and bizarrely really accurate. I, I don't quite know how Machida works off the top of my head, but that's the best way I would describe it. So Weidman isn't necessarily great on the feet compared to Machida, but he instantly understands, okay, I have to pressure this guy and I'm never going to let him set ever because the moment he sets, he's going to be able to create those little exchanges for myself. So Weidman is actively using little tools to push Machida consistently around to that fence. So many of the main things is if you're dealing with someone who's an active kicker, you want to kick at range with them. And so Weidman applies a lot of push and front kicks specifically. You can see this as soon as the fight starts. That is immediately what he starts doing just to never concede that range and force Machida to keep moving. And while he's doing that, he's also hand fighting Machida, which is basically hand fightings where there's basically a bunch of pairing between hands going on that it's basically allowing the fighter in question to control what the opponent's doing. Many of the fights I will talk about will involve hand fighting. So it's best that I explain it now. And uh, the other thing is, so as soon as Machida is able to commit to an action though, Weidman is looking to counter him or to take him down and doing these little things like allows him to consistently control Machida uh, and to constantly not let Machida get off. So well, all these little like movements just allow Weidman to just disciplinedly control this fight for about the first three rounds. But then two things happen. Um, first, Weidman gets tired because Weidman's, one of Weidman's weaknesses is that he could often enforce a pace that he couldn't really maintain, um, which to be fair, you kinda, he kind of had to here. But the second problem is Machida kind of figures out how to use one of those tools against Weidman. And the main tool is, remember how I said that hand fight? So the reason Weidman was hand fighting all along was in the open stance, the orthodox southpaw matchup. Weidman basically is constantly hand fighting Machida's lead hand. What you can do is you can watch that fight and watch how Weidman's just constantly touching it. And what Machida eventually figures out is I can bait that hand fight I can pretend that I'm going to let you engage it, and the moment we engage in it, or I fake the engagement, I'm going to body kick you oh, consistently. And and then he starts mixing it up because he starts timing like little left hooks in there, counters. And then if sometimes he can force a reaction out of Weidman, and that allows him to continue those exchanges. And he uses all those things to mix things up. And what eventually happens is Weidman's pressure is only as threatening as long as he's able to like control those exchanges and push that hand fight. And because of that, he's unable to really back Machida up consistently. And one of Weidman's big other weaknesses is Weidman can't enforce his pressure or physicality on his opponent, 
Like, he's way less threatening. Um, and so Weidman is often left to throwing naked kicks or punches, which makes him even easier to counter. And so the entire fourth round is basically Machida doing those little things to constantly, like, push Weidman around. And then the fifth happens. What happens in the fifth is Weidman figures out an answer. Um, and it's kind of a unique one. So the hand fight has been the central, like, dynamic here to how Machida changed it. it those lead hands, the Southpaw Orthodox. Weidman does something a little different, though. He realizes halfway through that there's a point where they clinch up. And as soon as they separate, Weidman starts hand fighting with both hands. He reaches out his other one, too. So he starts hand fighting Machida's rear hand on top of that. And what he does with that is he forces them to get closer together, like he forces proximity. That allows him to create like the clinch through the double collar tie. It is not called the Muay Thai clinch. Ignore the commentators. Um... And basically from there, it allows him to set up like little hits off the brakes, such as elbows, right hands, and eventually get his takedown game. But the moment he does that, he takes away a lot of Machida's success in the hand fight. He still has to grit and take shots in the process, but the whole dynamic of this fight basically is an idea of how you disciplinedly control pressure in order to control kind of a janky unorthodox opponent but also how that opponent can kind of create little moments and then build upon them to take back over the fight. And I think that's why Weidman Machida is a really, really fun fight overall, because it's between kind of a disciplined clinical fighter and a bit of a dangerous unorthodox fighter. I love it. I love it. No, I, I shout out to uh, at Rini MMA, who was on the last show. Thanks for shouting out the last show. Uh, and we'll get to him on listener submissions, but that was a really good one uh, that I saw come in right away. And I was like, yep, that's going to be a solid one. Um, worthy of being on this list, absolutely. Uh, I did not go back to rewatch it because um, I really try to, um, you know, uh, one thing I noticed about this, and you can weigh in here, Dan, is that there is so much. There is so much from in the middle of the context toward the violent side, toward the too slow side, which I was telling you behind the scenes that I kept leaning toward. Uh, there was just really so much to get through, and, and it's all worthy of talking about. I mean, you can really make cases, state lessons uh, of importance from a lot of these selections. So it's really hard to pick between these proverbial children, but that's a really good pick. You know, like, the thing about these fights also, like you just said, that that's really important for those listening. Because I'm mentioning, like, all... I'm mostly looking to mention the important things, which, when we get into the more complicated ones, I list... Because you bet I pick very complicated ones more than this. Um, that, that becomes essential to note. I did not intentionally going to say everything because otherwise we'd be here for another three hours. And yeah. unless you're interested in that, um, we have th this thing called a life and I'm sure you do too, but, yeah, um, totally, no, totally. But no, um, Weidman Machida is just a really fun fight. And by the end, it just becomes a really fun firefight. But I also want to mention, um, remember I said Machida was really accurate the f if you pay close attention, and this is one of my favorite like little tidbits of this fight, is Machida's body kicks keep landing at the same exact place, and it creates like an abrasion on Weidman, and it's kind of scary because it's like, like, he's pretty accurate, but um, yeah, it, it's a really fun fight, and I think um, Weidman's a super underrated fighter as far as middleweights go because uh, one of the dialogues that's been going on in kind of my niche side of um, MMA Twitter is who would be an interesting matchup for Adesanya now. And Weidman's kind of seems to be a consensus kind of interesting one. But um, Machida, a really, really fun fighter, terribly underrated. 
as well. But yeah, fun fight. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, and underrated. I know it's more popular of a fighter, former champion. So people go, like, what do you mean? He's a former He's a very popular fighter. But uh, understanding him is a very tough thing to do. And even me, I, I come from a karate background, but it's a different kind of karate. You know, he comes from not just Shotokan, but a different, uh, you know, different set of Shotokan from his father. And they, they adapted that over the years. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, ideally, you know, um, that countering range that you really, really connected well to this piece and topic with the hand fight was, was really well said. And you can't express how dangerous it is because even though Weidman came on top of it, and I, I don't know how much of a gambit, but you know, it, it was, but it was as far as getting more aggressive in that fifth. Um, and something that I mentioned on the last podcast too, and I mentioned about this fight before, is that you don't realize how much damage Weidman actually took. Um, and you listen in between corners, uh, and after that fight, he doesn't have a lot of memory of what, what was going on because a lot of those shots that he took perhaps did more damage than it may have looked visually, right? He was still able to complete his objective, but, uh, you know, the, the layers of cost, despite winning, is, is makes that fight a real a real interesting one in, in Weidman's catalog in particular, as well as Machida's and his arc. Mm-hmm. It's like Machida's last stand officially yes. in, yeah, like, the yes. upper echelon. And that in itself is its own, like, kind of epic tragedy, you know? Yes. Oh, gods, I'm bringing my literary background into it. Ignore me. No, no, it's it's good. It, it, it's great. It, it really is. And um, I'll, I guess I'll just leave it at this, but I think Weidman was dealing with some stuff behind the scenes going into that fight, mm-hmm. too. So it's just all the layers of um, all the layers of that one's a really good one. Um, my number five is usually I, I reserve for hipster choice, but since it's kind of a hipster topic with a hipster list, I don't know how hipster it is, but... Uh, the very little, uh, you know, it's kind of like a bride and a groom. If anybody who's done these top five podcasts with me before, we really don't want to burn the conversation, much less the selections of the list. So it's very limited banter for the pre-banter. Um, but uh, Dan did share with me that he was, uh, you know, a bit admittedly lighter on the grappling side of his list, not tip a hat too much on his list. So I was like, perfect. This will allow me to kind of, you know, um, pick some of those. And it allowed me to go older because there's some classic examples uh, from this organization I'm about to pick from that deserve to be on this list and high, but I won't, it, you know, if it was a definitive list, it would be. I'm going to avoid those ones. But I am going to take us back to Pride, and I'm going to take us back all the way back to, which is really, it's harder to do, so it's more simpler, but it, it's a great one for grappling. I'm taking us all the way back to 1998. I don't know where you were, Dan, in 1998. This Dan... Dan Tom was listening to some No Doubt on the bus, you know, uh, whatever the top, you know, I think I looked it up, the top album was probably like some Celine Dion stuff or something from Titanic. I mean, you know, this is 1998, folks. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's some Jenko jeans, there's some, uh, you know, flame, uh, flame t-shirt button up with a chain wallet. I mean, this is this era. This is how far we're going back here. However... As much as, sadly to say, as a fan of the 90s, a kid who grew up in the 90s, as much as 90s is becoming this notable era, like the 80s and 70s were before it, which is sad and telling of time, um, I would say that this grappling match, or the fight holds up quite well despite being criticized as primarily a grappling match. I think you guys know where I'm going. Pride 3, Sakuraba versus Carlos Newton. Um, you know, a Canadian, uh, you know, one of Canada's finest, in the grappling department, um, who would be playing, doing some really technical um, turtle position work, like a Canadian that would come later on by him, George St. Pierre. I won't burn any examples of 
things that perhaps on his that could have made this list, right? Uh, but Carlos Newton's a very technical grappler. Uh, so it was the classic, well, we, well, he's got another technical grappler in Sakuraba. Sakuraba, I don't believe, quite went on his Gracie-killing run, but he obviously came uh, from the catch school, the submission school uh, of things, um, you know, which obviously has that lineage and tie-ins with the pro wrestling crossing over from shoots to uh, MMA. And it was a big question, and Sakuraba looked like he prepared for it, where he always had a, you know, he, he fought in Southpaw, like a lot of grapplers, right? Um, he always had a good left kick or a good power kick from the power side for whatever that's worth. But you see, like, he really worked on his jab, and he's really popping the jab into it, and he's, he's setting up the kick now, you know, changing levels, going body to the head, which is big for Sakuraba, much less Sakuraba in 1998. You know, um, keep in mind, I believe, like, one of his only UFC wins at this time was the uh, Yakuza win, the infamous Yakuza win over uh, Conan Silvera. Uh, who is the guy who looks like Brazilian Hodor in the in American Top Team Fighters Corners? Yeah, see, you know, Dan, you can't get that out of your head now. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, so I mean, this was this time of Sakuraba's, you know, developmental style. Um, he wouldn't go. Thankfully, he wouldn't try to develop the striking too much. And I think his trilogy with Vanderlei Silva would kind of be all the reminder, as if not that he needed one to you know stick to the grappling, but like. Um, he uh, was able to annoy Carlos Newton enough. This was a fight of counters. So this is, the t this is why, it, it, you know, it wasn't just grappling representation. This is a fight of counters here. Um, he, wanted, he wanted to draw out a reaction uh, from Newton so he could counter with a takedown where he would get a clinch takedown, um, kind of a, a judo-style inside trip. I don't know the exact name, but he's kind of like high-hipping and bowing with it. And he, later he would also hit a reactionary kind of a, a double, I believe, um, because he was able to annoy and pester Carlos Newton. Uh, once he was able to take initiative using his countering, um, that initiative would allow him to be countered in the first round and also in the beginning of the second because he would get the top position, but going for a submission, and I don't, I don't want to say Carlos Newton let him because if you look at the way Carlos Newton's playing, he's doing like really advanced stuff from butterflies to, to even some vines, which is super advanced. You could tell the curvature on his back um, he's not being lazy, everything is tight, he, he's not being lackadaisical, so he's not letting Sakuraba go for attacks in that aspect, but uh, Sakuraba, who is chaining, you know, uh, a pass to a toehold, to a pass to a toehold, uh, is, is really playing off that to get to get his advancements and positions, and would either dive on the toe, the leg, or for the far side arm, and Newton would use those opportunities to counter Sakuraba and get on top of him. Uh, and Sakuraba would then, you know, to get out of bottom, would attack and go turtle. And I'm a big fan of turtle. It's a really underrated position. Um, and we get to see one of the earlier, dy earliest dynamics of that really play out because, you know, um, catch wrestling, 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 some of the oldest forms of combat, uh, in human history. Um, and when there was wrestling, you know, wrestling, you know, uh, Greek, Roman, one of the first Olympic sports, yada, yada. You know what wasn't around those days? Mats. Which means, you know what wasn't around? Guard play. Which means grapplers went turtle. This thing that, you know, it's so, you know, we're, we're so recency biased with jiu-jitsu and the jiu-jitsu's influence. I'm not hating on jiu-jitsu or its influence, by the way. But it's like, oh, it's so bad to turn away, right? Um which was fine, and that's how, like, Uriah Faber and Team Alpha Male players were able to 
uh, escape out of from bottom for, for, for good years without a lot of people catching on because they were doing what the jiu-jitsu schools didn't teach you. They turned away and turtled. But because they were wrestlers and understood the positions with submissions, they could combat that, whereas wrestlers just using strictly wrestling escapes may be more prone, obviously, to, to back takes a bit more. Um, but Sakuraba really just pairing these things early on, again, also comes from his lineage, and I'm a bit biased being, you know, a, a big catch wrestling guy myself, you know. Um, and, uh, and and Sakuraba really, you, you can see the, the, the intelligence, how he's protecting his head. And you hear Quadros kind of criticizing, this is almost like a grappling match, and there is striking, but it's like a chess match of striking. There, you know, Sakuraba is almost like lulling his opponent to sleep. He's trying to get him to forget about the strikes and then gets him to remember about strikes. And another thing about Turtle is you're baiting strikes, you're baiting back takes. They're saying, you're going to get punched and you're going to get back take if you go Turtle. But the thing is, good Turtle players are counting on you to punch them, to uh, side ride and settle your weight so they can Peterson variation you. They are waiting for you to try to throw your back so they can... Uh, you know, do the Derek Lewis style uh, ass over tea kettle, gonna get my ski slope back, gonna swim my arms, uh, you know, uh, to get you underneath me. Um, that's the thing, and Sakuraba knows this, and Newton, to his credit, knows this, which is why he's not getting overzealous from this turtle position. And um, Sakuraba does it to the point where it's almost like, okay, why isn't Newton striking? Why isn't, like, the chess match is almost to the point where you're, even me as a turtle guy who understands this in hindsight is still kind of scratching my head. And uh, it's this beautiful role, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, he, he, he catches him transition. And Newton doesn't make the exact, like, obvious mistake of putting one leg um, in between. But because of the transition and the role that happens, Sakuraba is almost able to, like, kind of, like, backstep variation into this knee bar and snatch it up. Um, and it's, it, it's hailed as one of, like, the best grappling matches for a long time. Uh, and to this day, by a lot of hardcores, and even for a, a list like this, I feel like it's a good representation for something early, something classic, something grappling. And again, the theme here, um, it's counters. It's, it's layers of counters upon counters, even on a grappling-centric um, MMA fight. Yeah, I think Sakuraba Newton is one of those early Pride classics that everyone should watch anyways. Because yep. to build upon that... Um, Grappling and wrestling isn't quite my uh, specialty. Um, it's not necessarily something I know the full technical nuances behind, like what term is what, what position is what. But I can point out like basic, like strategical, like angles to what guys are doing. Now, like the whole thing about Sakuraba and Newton that, or fights like it, that's really important is because like uh, one of one of the most important things. Um, my uh peer ryan wagner talks about the difference between like basic grappling and like mma grappling is part of like being on bottom position is so disadvantageous unless you're like very good and active off your back with submissions is um that the guy on top is often looking for strikes too and so like this this fight does incorporate that i, I know like quadras jokes during the fight is like hey they're intentionally not going for strikes and then Newton hits him, and it's like, oh, the dynamic changed and stuff. Really cute stuff. But, um, no, Sakuraba and Newton's one of those early, like, pride classics that everyone should see, just because it's, it's wild, it's great. Um, Sakuraba was one of those, like, quintessential, like, early action fighters, must-watch fighters, not just for, like, context of why MMA is important as a pioneer, but also just because he had, well, the most fun fights in early pride, you know? 
Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fight that people should watch anyways, which is part of the reason why it's on this list, and a fight that I myself, despite being a grappling Japanese MMA, uh, I love pride, uh, I love turtle position, like it checks all these boxes, and I'm like, I never talk about this fight. And when I went to re- re- revisit it, again, with these goggles in mind, it gave me a whole new appreciation on a fight that I thought I already appreciated. Um, but but that's kind of, a, I think, a, a real uh, cool point of this topic, I, I, I dare say. All right. Um, unless you have anything else to add to that one, let's jump to what you had for number four. My number four is actually a fight that I have written about before. Um, so before I joined um, TFS, I had my own personal blog, and uh, this is one of the fights that I have written about before. Um, I think it's still to this day one of the most proudest I've ever been of any fight breakdown I've ever done. Um It'll eventually be republished on TFS so it's more accessible to everyone else because, God forbid, I don't want anyone to have to hunt from my blog, but if you want to find it, I'm happy to send it. I will not be able to cover everything in this one because it's complicated, but um, it is Piotr Jan versus Jose Aldo. Um, and I'm going to begin by saying, um, so the context of this fight is extremely important. So Jan um, is kind of a TFS darling to be honest, because he's one of the most quintessentially brilliant fighters in the world right now, especially on the feet. He's one of the best pressure fighters I think MMA has ever seen in terms of cutting the ring off, incorporating pace and feints into his game, and especially building upon those. And his shot selection is phenomenal. Like, um, an honorable mention for this list that I almost picked, but I use as a context example with Dan here, was uh, his fight with Rivera, which is another example of these two-way technicals, where you really see Jan's adjustments in, like, ability to figure out, like, situations with his cutting um, shot selection. The the thing about Jan, though, is um, at this time, he's basically, like, considered and kind of basically still is the best bantamweight in the world, or to be the best. Um, and he's set up to fight Jose Aldo, and he... What a lot of people I, I don't think understand about 2019 Jose Aldo is you have to remember a few things. This is a guy who's been fighting for over like a decade and a half at this point. He has been through like a training regime um, and gym that is known for wars. He has been in very tough fights himself. He's been finished before. He is also not a great weight cutter, um, and he's cutting even lower to bantamweight. And if you watch him, he is visibly slower and not nearly as, say, dynamic as he used to be, like, even five years before that. Now, Aldo is also a major, like, fight site darling through and through. Most of us consider him the technical and, like, most accomplished fighter in MMA history. Um, I think he is indisputably one of the best defensive fighters, if not the best, uh, that MMA has seen, especially in terms of decisions. Um, but in this this context is really important here because at this point in time, Aldo has always had a gas tank issue, but now he's cutting weight. And if he's fighting someone who can force longer exchanges and a pace such as Jan, that's not really helpful for him. And so the odds are kind of stacked against Aldo when you were like building up to this fight anyways, because it's like, what what can he really do here? And it turns out Aldo fights basically one of the greatest losing strategic efforts I have ever seen in any fight in MMA. 
and it's impossible to really go over everything, but immediately on, you see that proficiency in the pocket from Jan trouble Aldo, but Aldo's like decent enough there to like compete with him. And so after the first round where like Aldo tries to like take him down and then gets hit in the body really hard, he changes strategies and turns this into really like one of his like defensive masterpieces. And so there's a little term called Occam's razor. And what Occam's razor means is basically sometimes the simplest solution is the best one. And it's, it basically means it's less about how much you can do with what you do. It's how you use what you can do. And so Aldo isn't really the guy who's going to throw like a ton of things. What he does is he throws specific things and he mixes them up enough to do them very, very well. So Aldo realizes a couple of things about Jan positioning and control is key. Like only, do what is necessary at specific moments when it's necessary. So if Jan wants to exchange, I need to step out of range, frame with my rear hand into a jab, or launch a basic counter. But I never ever let him control like the positioning. The other thing is um, starting in round two, Aldo starts kind of doing what's kind of called a, what I'm going to call a long guard variation, where he kind of stands with his shoulders kind of hunched and kind of like this. And he's constantly raising his knee because he's threatening knees. This makes it very hard for Jan to like easily get in because now Aldo's not so willing to commit to the pocket. And so that same pocket threat, by the way, still exists, though. And that allows Aldo to start piecing Jan up with leg kicks. So Jan is forced to turn to southpaw. And what that means is Aldo can now hand fight him and get his jab off easier. But the hand fight also has another, like, idea to it because since aldo is controlling positioning like if you watch this fight pay attention every time to something yon does how aldo will reposition or like look for a counter or frame off like always defensive steps first the small steps he can take like it's all simple it's energy efficient it's all about controlling those motions to like make sure yon cannot build up his pace but all these things that i have mentioned so far like here's why aldo is a genius because doing all these little things together makes Jan extremely predictable. So it's like, think about it. So Aldo's hand fighting him. He's threatening the entries with knees. He's doing all these little things together. And what that means is basically Jan's main options are going to be like maybe a rear straight or like trying to kick. Well, what's Aldo going to do? Oh, I can see that coming. Since your options are limited, I can just step out. Jan wants to come forward. Word as well, don't let him go forward ever. Just push him back, control directionality. He actively make him back up with feints and threats. Make him think and vary up my shot selection. And, oh, he tends to cover up with his high guard a lot like this. We'll constantly ex- feint to exploit that and then hit him to the body and then reposition out. Make him back up, exploit that guard tendency over and over again. But not only... And so the other thing that's important is... um. Even if I'm not hurting Jan, this controls the optics of it, the whole fight itself, since it's a scoring basis. But it also prevents him from building. And this effort is so disciplined and so impressive that, and I'm not even joking, Jan, who is one of the best pressure cage cutters in the whole sport, cannot get Aldo to the fence until the very end of round two. And it takes him another five minutes to do that again. And so that's that's how Aldo fights, and that in itself should impress you. Oh, but here's the thing. So this fight is a really important experience for Jan because Jan figures out how to break through as well and gets to show off like his experience in problem solving. 
So Jan basically figures out, here's the thing, you're still trying to be energy efficient. So I have to keep these engagements going, going no matter what. And there are a lot of things I have to do because eventually I'm going to break through and I have to be willing to take one to give one, but I have to do little smart things in order to make that work. So Jan, since he's working specifically in Southpaw here, because he can't be an Orthodox because the leg kicks happen. So he starts touching with his like Southpaw jab or like throw using little throwaway shots as in like little fake shots that's to set up longer combinations to constantly make Aldo keep moving. Because like I said, Aldo has to do something every time Jan does something. But then Jan starts mixing it up because it's like, for Aldo's incredible like upper body movement, because it is very hard to hit Aldo in the head throughout his whole career in general, unless you knock him out in one punch, but that's a different story. But um, what Jan does is basically okay, I'll vary up between the head and the body. And this ends up being the big game changer because if you can't hit a guy upstairs or you can't hurt him upstairs, then attack his body. And then I start fainting on top of that at two. The other thing is every time Aldo has to reset, I have to punish those resets. I have to keep you moving and keep having to defend because that still tires you out too. And all these little things together, or as well as one other thing Jan does, is so because Aldo was exploiting that high guard that Jan was using to cover up, Jan starts baiting that and then starts counter punching with the lead check hook off of that. And all that forces Aldo to get stunned, and then Jan can continue those exchanges. And this continues more and more and more until finally he breaks Aldo, which leads to an egregious referee stoppage. But it's hard to find a fight where you are so impressed with the loser. But you're also you recognize that this ex- entire experience, this five rounder, is a fantastic learning experience for the winner too. And y- Jan Aldo is uh, it's been praised a lot by my uh, kind of niche community. But ultimately, those reasons I think are why that fight is brilliant. That's, that's a great pick, man. Aldo is you know I used him for the the GIF uh, for uh, tweeting out listener lists, and it's it's because especially at this point of his career, he becomes that problem to, to be solved, in a sense. And um, But the difference is, even though, like, one I, I really wanted to have on here was, was, you know, perhaps another one where he loses to a building fighter, we'll just say, um, is that you get these uh, different layers where the other one that I really wanted on the list, it's a, it's a favorite of mine, uh, both breaking it down pre, um, and it is because when... Uh, when I spoke about this, it was more of Aldo, you know, I, I break him down a lot from a pace perspective that he needs his pockets of time to recover. So when he faces the building fighters like the like, like the Yons or the Holloways of the world, um, they don't allow that, that pocket to recover. And I think pace, and um, I've spoken about here a bunch, uh, I spoke about it last time I was on Heavy Hands, the picking up the pack, putting down the pack and picking up the pack as far as pace goes. It's definitely a part of a lot of Aldo fights, obviously. It's a part of a lot of the fights that are probably going to be on our lists. But what I love is that I've been so focused on pace so much. Um, I'll get tunnel vision. You know, the old missing the forest or the trees thing. You could you could definitely lobby that criticism at me a lot. And um, it's great because, A, it is a legitimate layer, the pace. But there are so much more layers going on, uh, like you stated, and why this one is above the rest is because Aldo really comes to play. You know, he really brings, you know, all the lobbying of criticisms for his lack of kicks and uh, through these other stages of his career. Um, 
you, you can't lobby those criticisms here. He really gave it his all. Uh, and um, and the one thing that, you know, I love you, 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 you note about his defense is like, it's funny because I think traditionally people wanted to draw out Aldo's big offense. He comes on the, the WEC stage with big offense. Um, and then by the time he's in his championship run in the UFC, right, he um, he essentially, because I still don't think he's lost any, any five-round fights that went to a decision. You know, I think I wrote about Aldo in, a, in a, one of my earlier breakdowns on him as, as a ruthless round-winning politician because there is just so much layers to what he's doing that he's not just speaking with his, with, with his skill, but he's also speaking with mannerisms. He's speaking to the ref. He's speaking to the judges. He's speaking to the audience. He's speaking to his opponent. Um, you know, for a guy criticized for not speaking or not, not speaking English or whatever, like he does a lot of speaking. And it's really impressive the layers that he kind of uh, provides. And I think the big thing is people want to draw out his offense, you know. Edgar wanted to draw out his leg kicks. Um, Jan, uh, you know, uh, not Jan, uh, but, you know, McGregor, I don't know how much he wanted to draw out or how much he could have predicted Aldo to, you know, come at him punching like that. But I think that was the idea people wanted to do. They wanted to counter his offense, take him down off his leg kicks, etc. But what we see, you know, uh, Jan figure out as far as entering, playing with stances and approaches – and uh, you see others as well, is that sometimes you, it, it, it seems almost better to just force the, the big defense and the big offense out of Aldo. Um, and the more impressive his defense gets in a lot of these fights that he loses throughout this certain stage of his career, it's almost like that's also a tell, tell sign that he's, he's, he's going to be losing because they're, they're, he's like a boss in a video game where, oh, I must be getting to the end because we're drawing out these big attacks, right? Because the attacks get mm-hmm. harder and harder. Um, with the boss in the video game. And a lot of these layers, a lot of these great fighters that provide these fights with layers, they tend to feel like bosses, uh, bad guys from a video game. It's right, it's really important. Uh, an honorable mention that I had for this was, I think you and I were probably on the same page, was a Holloway Aldo too, because that is one of the finest defensive fights of Aldo's career too. Yes. And Holloway still figures him out. But um, the thing that, one of Aldo's biggest weaknesses has always been he will commit 100% to his strikes consistently. And, and that's a reason why he tires out or like pace or like continued exchanges from durable guys can give him so much trouble. But you also, but nobody beats Jose Aldo unless you're able to create defensive and offensive like angles and positioning against him. And like you need to have versatility to your game because he has the experience, as this fight clearly shows, when he's basically, I don't, shot is a bit of an exaggeration, but his reflexes are not nearly what they used to be. Yeah. Um, and his experience matters here. There's so much towards making this probably one of the harder fights of Jan's career. Yeah, absolutely. And since we're kind of mentioning it, I don't think it's going to be any or less, like, to, to speak more freely around the points to your pick, is that, yeah, like, uh, that was a thing too. It's like credit to even Edgar, and I remember like talking about this theory with uh, I think I think it was like fucking McGregor Aldo weekend, and I think I was like just uh, some some journalist friends, and I think uh, Robin Black was actually there, and and we're I know it sounds very very Dan Tom and Robin Blackish, but we're, we we were busting out salt shakers, having our own sidebar, talking about Frankie Edgar, and one of the things that I noticed was that you know for all the problems of his circling to the abusing of circling in the proper way that Max does it, they both kind of provide a similar key there in different ways where Frankie would 
tend to not just Aldo in that first fight, but a lot of times on certain guys, he had that kind of auto shuffle to the uh, to the opponent's power side before he kind of started his approach. And he would really exacerbate that almost with Aldo. And my theory was is that he was trying to get Aldo to step and load his weight heavy on his power side, um, hence limiting not just power crowd, but mainly obviously the power leg kick that was like at its peak of hype when he first fought Aldo, right? Back at 156 or whenever that was. And of course that it may have, you know, uh, mitigated some of the leg some of the leg damage you could argue but what it did do obviously is it set that lane perfectly for Aldo to just really step into that jab and light him up with jabs and found out that he could jab Edgar so obviously it wasn't foolproof but I'm just looking at you know the right idea behind something uh kind of back to the the, the Machida you know thing you know, how he seems janky because he's, he's got the right idea from you know years and years of uh, you know, uh, traditional martial arts, but uh, like, like someone who comes from traditional martial arts, not exactly the best applications, right? So you have that weird kind of middle ground. Um, but yeah, but back, but back to the movement there, it felt like, you know, Edgar, even though he didn't do it properly, it didn't work, etc. it didn't mean that there wasn't an idea in there. And Max finds those with his circling uh, each way for, the, for his, you know, Aldo fights because it forces you know, Aldo to take those steps and step out of position. Again, why is he such a good counterer? Um, it's because he's seldom out of position, and that's the head-scratcher for even people like myself who pride themselves on not just picking Holloway the first time, but how they picked him. I was still with the Brian Stans and Dominic Cruises of the world scratching my head going, why isn't this, uh, why isn't the normal volume there? It's because it's because against a really good counter-striker, good, good counter-strikers will mitigate uh, good volume uh punchers ideally right in a perfect world so instead of running right into that wood chipper he ran the gas tank and the positioning and making him step out of position with movement more than actual strikes with footwork max did with actual strikes and uh, i know we're talking way too much about the max edition here but rounding back to your pick i feel like jan he just kind of pieces together a bunch of different uh ways to problem solve through kind of fe uh, feeling through space and it's just a beauty to watch um, those adjustments happen because, like you said, Aldo knows that he can't give that position, so he's constantly having to reset the position because he doesn't he doesn't want that to happen again. He doesn't want to lose position like he did against the previous builder, right? So the context of your pick is really important, and it culminates really well. Uh, anything else to add on that one, or should I jump to my number four? I think I'm good. All right. I apologize for the Holloway talk, but I guess it segues perfect to my number four. Um, I took something from the Holloway catalog, which maybe not popular in general, or maybe not even popular if you're trying to pick something for this list. But for me, this is opposite. This is a fight that it's not on many lists, but I do talk about it a lot on this show, mainly on my breakdown shows. Well, cause I always use this fight when I cite an example, um, for building, building off of leg kicks or, um, at least, you know, maybe prior to his loss to Volkanovsky, uh, uh, losses to Volkanovski, I should say, um, on why I felt like some of the leg kick stuff was a bit overblown, uh, like going into the Aldo fights, for example. It's because of his fight with Ricardo Lamas at UFC 199. Um, that makes my selection here. Uh, you can add in here or bury me for, you know, why would you pick this fight, I guess. But for me, it, it, there, there's a lot to it. Um, shoot, I, oh my God, I even took notes. Uh, it's essentially like Lamas doing... His punches to kicks, or a lot of time, they're just kind of fake punches to kicks. Uh, and Holloway figuring out 
that he has to, to answer that by attaching his kicks to his punches. Which, depending on which Holloway, which iteration, um, isn't something as, as quite so simple and expected as you might think, uh, depending on which fight we're talking about. But with this fight, you see him have to figure that out. You see Lamas essentially come out, and he's like, okay, we're going to get Southpaw Holloway, which Holloway would do Southpaw against a lot of wrestlers, perhaps maybe to change their shots. I don't know what the, you know, what, 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 what the methodology was behind that to make them cover more distance if they wanted their shots, maybe giving him more opportunities to move and counter. Um, again, uh, his coaches, you know, uh, they deserve a lot of credit, and, and I believe they have a lot of these layers figured out. So I'm just doing, you know, uh, going by how I interpret it. And Lamas is going out there and just uh, saying, okay, I'm going to just abuse you open stance and kick that leg, fake, kick that leg. And Max has to get a read on it because Max ideally is trying to push – Lamas to the fence and you see he almost gets Robbie Lawler-esque whenever he gets him into the kill zone between the inner black octagon lines and the cage but getting him there is a bit of a problem despite Lamas's propensity to kind of fight on the outside anyways which sounds sounds strange um, and you see Max eventually start getting out of the way of the leg kicks and kind of sliding back and then eventually he starts kind of tapping and attacking the legs himself to kind of you know okay well if, if I can't reliably see it every time or reliably have a counter ready because I'm shifting, moving, or I'm kind of working toward another goal, let me at least beat you to the chase and see how that works. And that's when he starts, I think, figuring out to put kicks to punches or to really lean on that more in this particular matchup. And he starts finding a lot of success, whether he's kicking the leg himself, he's doing that kind of Jackson Wink knee stomp, but he's tying it to like kind of like a time march variation where he'll bring his knee kind of high, hop, uh, stomp on it as he steps out to the left while, or to the right while throwing a left. Uh, he's doing a, a lot of different things which would get Lamas to, because again, a lot of what Max wants to do, not just with the Aldo uh, fight that we, we reference, he wants to draw either your big reactions of offense or he wants to draw your big reactions of defense. Like a lot of times, Max didn't even have to hit him to go on his first floor against Lamas, is because he drew enough of a defensive shelling reaction where Max, obviously somebody who loves going to the body, um, he salivates whenever he sees that. So maybe that's another reason why he, he, he could see that he was, would be a, a kryptonite for Aldo, right? Because he thrived on guys. Uh, he, he, he Not thrived, but he would work to guys, getting guys to either overcommit to their defense or overcommit to their offense. Uh, however, you know, uh, Max is not beyond being hit, and, and Lamas, you know, figures that out once the fight, you know, Max starts pouring it on and figures out how to get in, get, get in on him and get him to the cage. It makes Lamas go to frantic mode to where, okay, I really got to start sitting on my punches. It's not, it, you know, I'm beyond kicking range. And mainly I use my punches, me being Lamas here, speaking of, speaking as. Um, you know, I, I usually use my punches to fake kicks, but I'm getting poured on at the fence. And now he's having to step on his, you know, his, his counter crosses and hooks. And he's actually tagging Max pretty hard. He, he lands some of, some of the harder shots you'll see uh, pre-Max championship run. Um for sure, uh, in my opinion, you know, Max obviously has a granite chin, so he wears it well. He plays off of it, um, but uh, but yeah, um, both build off. Yeah, both essentially build off their kicks too, because Lamas will start going high off of his kicks uh, later. Max obviously building off the kicks in the way that I just said. So they're actually kind of both building there, and you know, even with the, the grappling, you know, Ma uh, Lamas starts off with a, a reactionary double fails, so then he switches to a single fails. And then his third attempt, he snatches a single but uses it to steer him to the fence and try to get things going there. Um, 
fails, but then uses it, you know, tries to build, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to take him down with a single, but I can use it to get to the defense, and then try to shuck by, uh, fails at the shuck by, and you see Max having, the, the reason why he fails is because Max is having to layer his defense of going, uh, hips, grip fight, oh, he's onto the leg, I'm going to push down and do my limp leg variation here, and he's kind of going through his own repertoire uh, with the grip fighting as well, obviously. So you get so many, um, so many layers of this one, and it's just a really good example um, that I always point to for building off um, leg kicks or max just building in general because you get a lot of those um, condensed to the point of, and I know they go into the swinging thing at the end, uh, which might take it out of this category. However, I feel like if you look at it, both guys had success or failures, but either way they exacerbated so many of the layers that Max, because there's, there's the gamesmanship layer that's going on too, right? And Max says, okay, I just outclassed you on this, that, and that. I'm going to give you the one shot you have to win this fight and uh, point down to it. So I believe that even that last moment could still add to this pick. Thoughts? Um, I, I don't have too much to add. It's been a while since I've seen that. I think a few things regarding fighters that I've added. Lamas isn't someone that I know too well, but I've seen him labeled as an opportunist by nature or trade. He's someone who kind of picks up on little things and tries to exploit them over and over again until they do or do not work. Um, Max is really important to understand as far as um, – I spoke about Jan earlier. The only guy who probably surpasses Jan as far as the worst guy you ever want to build over the course of a fight is probably Max Holloway. Mm -hmm. um, and the crux to Max's success is always going to be that lead hand jab because if you can't take away that jab – if you can't stop him from making longer exchanges, then things are going to get pretty dicey for you. Um, and only really, the only few ways that you can really do that are A, you can compete and bang it out with him in the pocket or make him back off, of, i.e. Poirier, or B, you be Alexander Volkanovsky and be able to, like, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, 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 we'll get to that. Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, and and, that, and that's the thing. Uh, the, uh, the, the, we'll end it at the Poirier because, yeah, you're right. It's not just extending combinations, which something Poirier can do. I know you've talked about recently there. Uh, you, you're, you, you know, you're on there on the Twitter, on the Twitterville, stirring up those Connor fans. It's those Connor fans, sixty nines out there. No, just kidding. But uh, but yeah, man. Poirier, but Poirier uh, obviously didn't extend combinations as so much. You know, used his ability to navigate and really, you know. Um, close the door on some things with some counters, but it, it was uh, it was really nice. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I figured it was one that doesn't get talked about. A really popular fighter mm -hmm. that doesn't. And Lamas, I agree with the opportunist. Uh, but that was another thing surprising with this category because a lot of these topics, it was like, well, you know, you know, Holloway Aldo one. It's more of I, I feel like I'm more talking about Holloway is the more of the star of the adjustments. Where even though he loses, you could argue uh, Aldo is the one that shows more. Um, in the second one, as far as adjustments go, he shows a little more, uh, at least commitment to some layers and ideas and, and a better idea of what to expect, even though the result obviously is not there. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I just wanted to point that one out because there's just a lot of examples of a lot of things for Holloway and others. So Holloway Lamas. All right. Um, yeah. Year number three was what we're on, Dan. What do you got? Number three is probably a pick that um, a lot of people may be listening to this who aren't really um, too knowledgeable of the Russian MMA scene may not have heard of before. 
but uh, in kind of my niche side of Twitter, it is a huge favorite. Um, it has an argument for being maybe the best three-rounder in MMA history, honestly. So this one kind of cheats a bit because the first 10 minutes um, is are incredible, really. Um, it's one of the closest fights I think I've ever seen. But um, it is set through an organization called ACA, ACB. You can find a lot of their fights for free on YouTube. But um, this one specifically is between um, two guys by the name of Edward Vartanian and Alexander Chablis. And uh, if you've ever seen this fight, um, I highly recommend, um, as in if you've never seen this, I highly recommend you do, especially the first two rounds. So... This is honestly one of the best striking battles I've ever seen in MMA for the first 10 minutes specifically because the final five minutes kind of tapers off, but I'll get to that. So the whole crux of this is is between um, Vertanian, who is kind of an all-terrain like um, outfighter who works very well behind his jab to control positioning. His outfighting is really, really good. I think um, as far as like working behind a jab to control positioning, he's probably the second best I've seen defensively after Aldo. Um, he wants to basically control that whole distance behind that jab, but he's also great at like transitions into his wrestling and whatnot. Chablis, um, you may know as a guy, I think he recently debuted in Bellator. I don't actually know off the top of my head. I haven't actually watched that. Um, Chablis is basically arguably one of the greatest strikers lightweight has ever seen. His whole crux is that he's an excellent counterpuncher with an idea of timing his shots and messing with rhythm and feints. He's one of the best rear-handed fainters I've ever seen in MMA. And uh, he might be one of the scariest knee fighters out there. And so this whole fight, basically the opening 10 minutes, is just pure chaos because you see these two just engaging in this like crazy battle of like rhythm manipulation and fainting. And the tide turns, like, one way, and then it turns the other way. And so you have, like, two round-of-the-year contenders next to each other. And so what happens is, early on, Chablis, like, Vartanian's jab is his bread and butter. So I'm going to faint and preemptively counter you with hooks, and then immediately chain punches and knees off of each other as I shift in. And shifts are where um, you kind of switch as you're punching or throwing a strike. And so if you watch this fight, Chablis will, like, switch to southpaw and then punch and then turn that into a knee or, like, apply, like, a single collar tie and then put heavy pressure on Vertanian early. And so, like, early on, he really, really messes Vertanian up because Vertanian can't get his jab off without Chablis countering him. And then literally a minute and a half later, Vertanian finds an answer. or Because what he does is, like, okay, so you're expecting the jab, so what should I do? Why don't I throw a lead right hand instead? And from there, he starts timing like Chablis off of that. And, and as soon as he starts establishing that, he breaks. He basically busts up Chablis' nose. Ooze, and like every time Chablis tries to counter or step forward, then Vartanian brings out that jab as a counter to the step. But then Vartanian, like as soon as he's able to put Chablis on the back foot, he starts shifting into continue putting pressure on Chablis. And so, like, um, what ends up happening in that first round is, like, you kind of see um, both guys are, interestingly, like, using the clinch as a transition or smothering tool, too. And you see this in the upper levels of MMA where guys will strike into the clinch or they'll strike out of it off of breaks. 
And so, like, because what you don't see in, like, boxing, unless you're, like, watching, like, really committed infighters, is, like, they do, the clinch is supposed to be separated, usually. But in MMA, it's, like, used as more, like, transitioning for, like, guys to do more. Like, you see that a lot with Demetrius Johnson, and you see that with these two, because they're actively going in and out of the clinch through their strikes, or using that clinch to smother the other guy, or turn them onto the fence to get more work done. And so it's constantly, like, action-packed in and out of the clinch as well. And so kind of where Vertanian starts getting the better of the clinch, though, is because he's kind of a better transitional grappler, where, like, he'll smother and then he'll turn it into, like, just a... He'll try turning Shibley and then, like, trip him. And so Vertanian, like, ends up kind of being better at, like, navigating these exchanges as time goes on and with, like, his own feints and stuff. But then Shibley makes an adjustment in the second half of round two. Who? Because what he starts doing is he starts, like, kind of switching his stance into southpaw, like, shifting as Vertanian steps in and takes his head off the center line and tries to time uppercuts or counter hooks. And the center line, just so you know, is basically, like, the straight line for when guys engage. So, like, Shibli will, like, take his head off the center line and try to go for a counter uppercut and stuff. But then, like, what he does is he begins, like, fainting a bit more again whenever Vartanian's taking a step back looking to counter jab. And he'll faint to set Vartanian's guard up, and then he hooks around it. Or when Vartanian tries to counter it, he'll counter that counter. And um, then he also, to deal with that lead right... Um, he starts fainting to draw those rights out, and then he takes his head off the center line to counter with his own rights, because it's like, if the other guy's going to time you with leads, use that right hand effectively. And so then, like, he starts mixing in his own, like, blitzes and shifts, and just, like, he eventually hurts Vartanian in, like, the second round of what's otherwise really, really close. But uh, it, it's constantly, like, on the feet, it's just crazy action between, like, two guys who are constantly doing very similar things with their rhythm and fainting, but like whomever controls the engagements at the moment typically wins it. And it kind of is like Vertanian's craft, like being pitted against Shibley's dynamicism. And it keeps things interesting. Um, and that's kind of the, on the feet dynamic, the ground action isn't really that interesting. in like round three, basically Shibley like, um, isn't as good as like managing space. Cause he gets backed up a lot more. Or, but he starts going for, like, counter, like, takedowns as well to control Vartanian as well. Um, but just, there's a lot that's happening in this fight. And I'm, like, giving a very layman's terms for it because the opening 10 minutes are just nonstop action. I agree. Uh, this is uh, one of the, the few ACA fights I can actually weigh in. Not one of the few, I should say. I just, I mainly watched from about 32, and this is about the time where my watching tapers off as just the UFC and my beats start to take over. But this was a fight where I remember just trying to, I would just kind of have uh, ACA or ACB this time, um, just on, uh, you know, Saturday mornings for me here, West Coast Pacific time. Like, I'd have it on in the background while I was doing stuff, trying to get stuff done before the fights, and uh, which I could never do. And so I specifically, I say that because I specifically remember this one where I was not aware of these two guys before this. Um, and this was one of those fights similar to like that ACB 32 fight, the first fight between, um, Jan and, uh, uh, I can, oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> why, why am I forgetting, uh, uh, 135? Magomedov. Magomedov, yeah, Magomed Magomedov, huh? the most, I, I could have made up that name, uh, but yeah, uh, their first fight, of course, uh, I'm referencing where Jan lost the, the, the really, really close split there. Um, this fight is probably like, 
maybe bordering the top three with, of course, Jan uh, Magomedov on the top with a, probably a Murat Belia fight somewhere in there, too. A big Murat Belia fan, uh, fresh out of prison. Uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, uh, this fight was just really, you know, the striking for the first 10 minutes really caught my eye. I can't go back um, over detail because I have not gone back to watch it in some time. And I just I can't I can't believe it's been since, since it's so long since that fight even happened. I'm looking at it right now, uh, but uh, but yeah, these are two fighters that it was a fight that is a worth watching and b it's it's worth watching because it's it's a good fight as well as these are guys you need to be aware of. Um, you know I think was it uh, you know uh, you know was it Vartanian whatever his only loss is like triple A and like his first fight or some shit. I mean these guys really have not. Uh, these guys really have not lost uh, a lot. They're very technical fighters. Um, and it's just those fighters that, you know, that, that, that are really good that you don't know about kind of a thing unless you're following these scenes. So I, I co-sign, although I, I cannot contribute um, as much of the technical stuff and the wherewithal of that fight. But, yeah, I, I, just, I just remember it being an amazing fight. And I didn't really have too hard of an opinion on either way it would have went. Um, though it didn't surprise me, I guess, that uh, Vartanian um, got the nod at the end there. Yeah, I, I, I will say, like, following the Russian MMA scene is pretty hard, but there's been a lot of influx of talent from that scene, such as we mentioned Jan already. Like, that's where he came from, and, like, as far back as his fifth fight, like, Jan already looked tremendous. So, like, if Jan's, like, there, and we think pretty highly of guys like Vartanian, Shibli, Ali Bagov, of uh, AAA, etc., then let that at least vouch for, like, Russian MMA being interesting and worth looking into. Absolutely. All right, number three time, is it? Or is it, uh, yeah, number three time for me. So this one is um, uh, another one I could, it's probably going to be that people are going to be like, huh? Uh, when I put it on there. But for as much as it's cool to, you know, talk about technical fighters or technical fighters who aren't talked about a lot, like, you know, the, the last selection we just went over, right? I would argue it's still important to maybe talk about more popular fighters who don't fit this bill, but for the fights where they, they, they did especially when their dance partner did too. And these are two fighters who come from the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Um, aggressive, reckless opportunists versus grindy, boring, does-nothing style. And I actually do talk about this fight, but it's usually a quick reference, like I did in the last podcast. I just referenced this fight. But I actually went back to watch it, and it actually... Uh, it filled out even more of the context than I remember to the point where I have to put it on the list. And it has grappling. So it's John Fitch versus Eric Silva in Brazil. Um, I don't know if you remember much about this fight, but uh, a lot of times, we, uh, me as well, often remember it as the one time John Fitch was fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, but like, <clears throat> aside from that, because the guy was, you know, he didn't. He already went through his licensing right deals with the UFC. You know, enough to get on their bad side. He went through a bit of a losing streak. I think Fitch, you know, he got knocked out like stiff by Johnny Hendricks, um, and I believe he lost another one. I think it was to, not Kostic, their freaking teammates, but like somebody. He was only on a, on, a, on a, like his first like two losses in a row type deal, right? And you knew the UFC was gonna cut him. And he stated that he was going in to win fight of the night, which I was like bullshit, John Fitch. You're not gonna go in and win fight of the night. And it was crazy. I went back and looked at the odds. John Fitch was actually an underdog to Eric Silva, which is bananas. Because Eric Silva didn't really fight, fight many people. He hadn't been exposed at this point, you know. He, he Again, he didn't qu quite come up on make career-altering beatings because you've got to spread it between this fight, 
Matt Brown and that you know that that random uh, knockout by Dong Young Kim for for old Eric Silva's decline. But this was that first his first big loss here, right? That wasn't the disqualification. And uh, and yeah, the, the fight starts and it's great because this is a fight. And by the way, what also prefaces this example, it's going to connect to my next pick is these are two fights and. I, Tell me if you notice this, Dan. A lot of these fights with adjustments, technical uh, fighters uh, making tactical adjustments, uh, maybe even deviating from their original strategies, um, is that a lot of fighters, and this is a basic fight language, um, like when Brad Pickett threw the knee at, uh, what's his name, at UFC 189, the Brazilian kid. Almeida. Almeida. Uh, I, I said aloud to everyone I was watching with, I'm like, okay, now here's where Almeida does it back to him. And he knocks him out, right? Okay, so, but it's based off that basic theory where this pops up in a more technical way in a lot of these fights, at least in my next two selections, Dan, where you have one fighter presenting certain ideas and they're working, and the other fighter steals that. Doesn't necessarily just build, doesn't build off it, but he just outright fucking steals it. And he does it to the person back and does it better. And I don't know. I don't know if you came across this with a lot of your selections or a lot of your research, but it would. I, I felt like I saw that theme a lot, and you see that here where John Fitch is. You know, Eric Silva is is being reckless. Eric Silva and throwing naked knees and body kicks, which are you know, John Fitch is like perfect. That's what I'm waiting for to take you down. Um, and John Fitch is you know doing his his you know he's doing a shuck by. Uh, and it's it's great because Fitch comes from a wrestling background, but they're both really similar because. Eric Silva is a not just a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that the commentary talks about, but he's also a black belt in Judo. And John Fitch's black belt in Jiu-Jitsu comes under Dave Camarillo's hybrid because Camarillo is a black belt in Judo and Jiu-Jitsu. So in other words, there's a very similar well-tooled, the difference being, and the deciding factor is the, the, the embrace the grindness of John Fitch's wrestling, to oversimplify it. But from a Judo perspective, there's a lot of the similar things where both guys are very... You know, like judo players, kind of like wrestlers, except I would argue better because they're harder to get down and they'll actually kind of like, you know, uh, they'll really tripod, which where they'll get to their feet, and which makes a more of a ski slope that I referenced before. It makes that even steeper as a back trip, uh, back take trap. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and they'll go and they'll fight hands and, and so forth. And Eric Silva's doing that, but John Fitch knows that's coming, so he knows how to play it, right? So he's kind of doing his own version of uh, another AKA fighter that would really popularize uh, the meta and do it much better than Fitch does in this fight. But uh, doing his own meta of, okay, you're going to build up. I'm, I'm waiting and ready for you. You could tell Dave Camarillo had him really well trained. Uh, and then, um, and, and, uh, and, and Silva would hit some reversals to his credit, right? And in the next round, again, to Silva's credit, um, who, a guy who wasn't technical, a guy who would break after a bad first round, he actually has a much better second round than I remember, specifically because he starts doing the stuff to John Fitch that John Fitch to, uh, did to him, including getting him down, uh, shucking around to his back. Um, again, and, and, and Fitch, you know, using judo and wrestling-esque uh, MMA-style get-ups. Uh, you know, conversely, Silva knows how to play off of those two. So he's playing off of it and doing the same. He, now he's nailing the same moves and the same sequences uh, to get to John Fitch's back, right? Uh, luckily for John Fitch, of course, as you know, he credits his time training for the BJ Penn fight, is that one of Fitch's moves is that he allows guys to take his back 
um, so that he could turn into him, a la Anthony Pettis. You know, uh, to Pettis's credit, it was, it was a very savvy thing that he would do. So now that Silva's turned the tail, uh, turned the tide, he's actually John Fitch, Fitch, you know, giving us a first glimpse—not a first glimpse, because B.J. Penn gave us a little bit of a glimpse that, like, hey, this guy's offensively a fucking nightmare as far as the grind goes. But that doesn't mean you can't do it to him either. And Fitch, having to deal with that now, starts baiting submissions to turn back into him. There's some really good sweeps. I think Silva still hits like another good sweep on the ground. Uh, but by the end of the second round, you see where the fight's going. Uh, and Fitch is just able to come out on top of the transitions uh, to where now he knows that he was able to survive gas Eric Silva out. And I wrote AFK, and props to people who, who get my reference here uh, when I say that a fighter goes AFK. Uh, and pretty much just puts a beating on him, so it probably could have been stopped. Like, like Silva goes AFK, like, two minutes left in the round. I don't know what the what the hell happened, but to Silva's credit, he actually gets back at the very end. He gets up and starts swinging. And, uh, again, it's, it's weird. There's plenty of other technical fighters and technical fights that could easily be more deserving of this selection, but I wanted some grappling, and I wanted to represent two guys who you would not associate with this list in a fight where they both, A, gave their best examples of this, and they both be did it against each other. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, so I, I'm going to level with you. I, I don't think I've ever actually seen this one, or at least okay. I don't remember. But but I wholeheartedly disagree with John Fitch being only entertaining that one time. Sure. Because sure. watching GSP beat his ass was really fun. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in trouble. Okay, so the whole thing about... Um, I, I, grappling too is an honorable mention i would have had if i actually knew how to like analyze grappling in, like specific terms is shout out to my boy zach Makovsky and his fight with scott jorgensen because that's a very very good one really good. um um but i i think the funny part about uh fitch is always like he was deceptively smarter than he looked even if like he was never really like the best fighter out there Silva, though, um, I still look forward to uh, him being the greatest prospect ever. His day is coming. But um, that Matt Brown loss was a setback, man. That Matt Brown loss, speaking of great fights, um, I, I don't have too much to add because I've not really seen it. But, um, yeah, I think I'll watch that eventually, and you probably should too. Yeah, yeah. Also add a note that uh, Silva almost gets a guillotine, which is not as surprising. But both guys, since they both have their moments on top, uh, forces the other guy to work from bottom, and John Fitch actually is a really sweet armbar that probably, if the cage wasn't there to survive uh, Eric Silva's cartwheel escape, and it was at the end of the round, I think he would have had Eric Silva dead to rights. So just getting to show another underrated aspect of Fitch's game, you never saw that jujitsu out of him, but like he was selling out for finishes, which was another thing that Fitch didn't necessarily do. So, alright, let's move on from that one, and uh, let's go to your number two, sir. Getting juicy. Number two is very complicated. Uh, it is the first fight between Demetrius Johnson versus Joseph Benavides. Um, we'll also mention it has one of the worst crowds ever during it, but that's besides the point. So Johnson, Benavides, I don't think neither guy are, is at their peak in this one, but you have still have two very experienced, two all-terrain, former bantamweights who are really relying upon their physical attributes, but... This kind of builds off upon the transitional aspect I talked about with Vartanian and Chablis, how they can strike into the clinch or use that clinch for, like, more transitions to wrestle or to, like, strike again. And you see that really playing out between these two constantly. And what evolves is this fantastic fight, honestly. Like, very, very underrated 
contest. Um, one of the best flyweight fights ever. So Benavidez's strategy is Benavidez likes to really like blitz in and like push opponents back kind of physicality against Johnson specifically. He kind of likes to set up those big shots or to get Johnson to the fence where he can like wrestle him because well, Benavidez is ludicrously good on the ground as a scrambler too. Um, and there's a lot of damn scrambling in this fight between yeah. both guys. So the blitzes themselves often will involve like shifting, chaining those blitzes into hooks, etc. But the other thing is the blitzes are often used as a counter. So if DJ commits to like an entry point or like tries to step in, Benavidez instantly like looks it to a counter. The other thing is DJ is trying to get his jab going. And I've talked before about taking away an opponent's jab, but here it comes into play again. Because what Benavides does is he starts playing with the open stance where he'll switch between southpaw and orthodox to take away that lead hand jab. And so what DJ starts doing is DJ starts to switch back into southpaw himself to make it a southpaw-southpaw. So Benavides switches back into orthodox to take it away. And so it leads to constant like switching there as well. Oh, But it keeps forcing DJ to switch, and it keeps allowing Benavides to build and DJ to not. And so then Benavides kind of ups his game a bit by, like, jabbing his way in and then, like, employing level change feints to really push DJ to the fence. But unfortunately, the problem is once he gets him to the fence and on the clinch, it turns out DJ is a little better in the clinch than he is. So it becomes kind of a battle between Joe B kind of trying to put his hand on the bicep and get those underhooks to, like, kind of turn him into trips. But DJ's, like, getting those overhooks and then like attacking the body with like constant knees to wear Joseph down. And it's like, they're also, I, I said in Vartanian Chablis entry that like the clinch is often used as a counter to smother. You see that with these two too, because both guys are constantly blitzing in the other will just smother them into the clinch and then like turn them onto the fence and where the dynamic continues. So DJ's attritional strategy kind of pays dividends here to like slow Joseph down as the fight goes on. But like, all these little things that have already happened are really demonstrative of like how flyweight is such a transitional base division in terms of the phases that you don't really see in many of the other divisions. So, but having said that DJ is kind of still at a bit of a disadvantage, but he figures out an answer. So he finally figures out how to get his jab going. Here's what he does. So he starts like using feints and throwaways, like faking the jab and he starts using Benavides' own hand fight in the open stance against him and to, like, force Benavides to counter out and then, like, takes a slight step back and then counter jabs him and or, like, counter hooks him or he'll just pivot reset and then open up another shot. The other thing he starts doing is he starts punching off his kicks and vice versa uh, to keep momentum going for himself. But Benavides also finds an answer when DJ starts taking over because DJ is also, like, using that jab as a frame. So he starts, like, hooking over that to start punishing him, a la, like, Ali Foreman, and, and really, like, using those counter hooks yeah. to, like, time counters. And he really relies upon those overhands. The other thing he does is, because DJ's trying to reset a lot, uh, he starts attacking the body and, like, divvying his blitzes between the head and body. And this allows him to, like, get a knockdown in round four, because, like, DJ... A, like, tries to throw a kick to make him back up, but Benavides sets up that overhand. And then it leads to a really crazy, like, transition on the ground where they both nearly tap each other. It's awesome. Yeah. But but ultimately, though, DJ finds his answer at the end of round four, where um, basically, um, because Benavides is blitzing in, 
and but he's also being worn down from the pace of the fight from those knees and constantly both guys doing a lot of things happening because god knows there are a lot of things happening in this fight yeah constantly um what happens is because benavides's entries are getting more predictable dj starts fainting a lot more and ups that game in like the last round and a half and starts forcing benavides to blitz or commit to a counter and then like counter double lakes him and if benavides backs off uh, he then like pursues him more and like goes for more like clinch work to make joe work more and this and as soon as he gets him on the ground he starts like elbowing him and like the ribs and stuff which is just mean and unfair and dj's casting is stupid but um no i i think that i've already exemplified this point but this fight is like not only great even though the crowd was booing for god knows what reason but um it's really demonstrative of like flyweight's transitional games but it's also just a banger of a good fight really it is uh which is this the is this i always confuse this moment in the ian mccall one which is the one where dj's shuffling and getting him to follow and then just sits on the counter and hume gave him that exact that exact note in the round before and drops him i think it's McC- i think it's mccall because like i don't think yeah because it's like um i haven't seen mccall before but um no sorry i haven't seen it in a while um right. yeah it's like no dj and benavides here aren't at their best but it's like both of them are so good and like you just see them like employing all these little things against each other as the dynamic turns like they turn little things the other guys are doing against each other like it's a fight full of adjustments and what's also so cool about it is like okay actually sad I, wrong word sad is like you see that dynamic build in their rematch too, yes. and then DJ knocks him out. Yeah, and it's like it probably would have been an amazing fight given how it was going. Yeah, I'm but like, it's. I'm... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm done. That's basically it. it's just a very, very good fight. It's a very good. It's a very underrated fight. Um, probably the most qualified on DJ's. If I were to pick two, because, um, it's, it's two way. Whereas like one of my favorite adjustments is over two fights, although technically you could just do it within the one because you see him figure it out in the first, which is Dodson. But there's less on the Dodson side than there than the Benavidez side, to make, which is what makes your pick so fruitful. Uh, and then just as a fun, very simple, stupid dynamic, I always just thought DJ and, and Cruz is just kind of an underrated fun one. Uh, you know, a really fun live watch, and it's still fun on rewatch, but as far as the context of the list... Uh, that is that is a that is a really great pick, and uh, I completely co-sign with it being on the list as well as this high, very very deserving. All right, on that note, with a little quick uh, lapse in time, I will get to my number two, um, which connects with my number three, well, um, which hopefully makes my number three a little more forgivable if anybody had a issue with that one. Which is, it was a fight where, like I said, that a lot of these times the, the ideas are shared built upon and sometimes outright stolen um in these back and forths and with fitch and silva it was one fighter stealing it and doing it back but it didn't work out right the result didn't go their way this fight is the striking version of this of the converse example of it actually working where it's more of a striking based mma fight and the person who stole the technique um, runs away to the bank with it. And it's not the guy you would necessarily think. In hindsight, maybe not a surprise, but when you put yourself within the context of 2004, Dan, we're going back to pride. 
um, to one of my favorite just body punching fights with MMA fights with body punching in it because I love body punching. I love body attacks. It's something that's traditionally been absent to the point, uh, not completely obviously, but like to where fighters like feels like only now are catching on that you can go to the body and it, it's very helpful when you can't find your fighter or if you want to set up your big strikes or if you just want to score uh, on a frustrating fighter. Um, frustrate them back. And this is Takanor Gomi versus Jens Pulver. Um, yes, yes, you know that was a very one of the early examples, like with the previous Pride example, an earlier grappling example. Um, this is one of the more striking centric fights. Uh, Gomi was actually, you know, still had a lot of his, despite you know he did suffer the loss from Penn not too long ago, so he didn't have his like. Uh, Maybe the same vibe, but he still had a, a big reputation from the Shuto scene. And Shuto, shoot, wrestling, uh, he came from that, right? He kind of made his money. He had the fireball kid. Uh, he was like a Tito Ortiz, uh, w w w the, the, the kind of homage there with the, the trunks and whatnot. Um, and he actually made a lot of his money with ground and pound, which sounds funny to most people because as he matured, he focused less on his sub defense and more on his striking and would just get into these wars that would he ended up getting subbed. So it might, again, people that aren't familiar, I know I'm preaching to the choir for most of you. Like, why are you telling me something I already know about Gomi, Dan? Like, not, not a lot of people might realize that, and it's good to understand the context, right? Because Pulver was the striker coming in, right? Uh, Pulver was one of the few guys, you know, uh, the only guys, um, I don't even think Machida had this at the time. He's like the only guy, I think, at the time to beat BJ Penn, right? Um, he, BJ Penn had not yet avenged his loss to Pulver at this time. Pulver had already won the UFC gold, uh, like... Like many, like many lightweight champs, um, you know, uh, he was the first, you know, uh, you know, Southpaw striker, lightweight champ, had issues with uh, the organization, went, you know, elsewhere. One of the many things that happened, you know, for free Conor McGregor folk, like, I just love pointing out these things, like whether it's Penn or Pulver, like pointing out, like, yeah, a bunch of people did the same shit uh, Conor did. Obviously not to the same scale because it's a different context and time, but whether it's technical or random tidbits from the outside, like, this shit's already happened before, folks. History repeats itself. Um, but anyways, uh, not dying on that, obviously, example for this, but Pulver was, like, the guy, right? He was the southpaw striking lightweight. He had boxing. He actually had boxing fights on his record. Um, uh, he would dabble in boxing on and off through his MMA career as well. Came up, came up through wrestling. So this had all the makings and ended up being the making for a striking fight. And people were calling, the commentaries calling, watch out, Pulver said he's going to attack the liver. You know, he's the southpaw, the left side, the liver side. Uh, you know, if anyone's going to attack the liver, it's a southpaw striker. That's, you know, not that, that many of those actual ones in MMA at this time. It's going to be Pulver. And sure enough, Pulver goes in, and he is really trying to counter. He's trying to really hit that. Uh, he favors a lot of the shots that, again, McGregor actually favors. When, when McGregor would line up against southpaws, he loved the inside slip. He loved to counter over the jab, the straight shots, which he was doing really to a lot of effect, looking the inside parry. Uh, rear, rear, rear hand parry inside slip uh, and build off of that um, then he starts then then all of a sudden he starts going to the body right like uh, especially when Gomi starts switching his stance and, and and to try to disrupt those jabbing reads Pulver goes okay well what, what's open then the body right like I said off the top on why I love body punching and why, why it needs to be done more or body striking uh, in MMA I guess right um, and and sure enough Pulver starts doing that and you know the, the, the commentators feel prophetic but like I set this up with, uh, the other fighters start stealing those tactics. And you see Gomi start having similar ideas, including like uh, 
rear-handed parries in his own versions inside slips. Not as clean, but like he's he's got the idea. And Gomi starts doing it back. And then Gomi starts ripping the body back to him. And at a certain point, one of those shots really hurts Pulver. But Pulver has a great poker face. And credit to commentary, they they really picked up on it. I don't know if it was Boss or somebody who actually fought. They could kind of read that unspoken rhythm. And you see a little bit more back foot from Pulver, who wasn't too back foot uh, in this fight at this point. He starts kind of retreating space, which is the telltale sign of a body shot hitting really well. Um, a fighter can have a good poker face. So he can't. Can I tell? You, he doesn't look hurt. Look where he's moving, right? Look where the feet's moving. Uh, and Gomi senses that, and he starts pouring it on. Uh, and he goes to the body a couple more times. And once he knows that Pulver's hurt, he really starts headhunting and blitzing, and, and he finishes with a just a you know a beautiful power headshot there. But the thing was, it was the body that actually set it all up. And it's like one of those things where it's like. You know, you can give you you can give your opponent uh, you can interject an idea if you're not careful. You know, uh, that's why like fighters that, that that want to counter someone's leg kick, I want to I want to take this guy down to leg kick me. Well, then you want him to leg kick you. Well, how do you want him to leg kick you? Throw a leg kick at him because back to the Brad Pickett versus uh, Tomas Almeida, it's it's human reaction to mimic. Mimicry is a human reaction, um, and, and people naturally want to mimic. So if I want you to leg kick me, I need to leg kick you. It's this really weird reverse psychology, and sometimes it works. Like in the uh, like in this fight, it worked for Gomi, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, like it did when Silva tried to mimic Fitch's game plan. So I felt that these were two hipster fights in different areas, different time periods that really had both examples of stealing an idea when stealing an idea goes right, and when stealing an idea goes wrong. So there's my pick. I think uh, to touch upon a point about stealing an idea, it's not so much that they're like quote unquote stealing idea for the sake of like simply gamesmanship, but sure. it kind of goes back to what I was talking about a bit with Weidman Machida, which is like, okay, so Machida is a kicker. You don't want to concede kicking range to that guy. So you kick back with him. Him too. It's it like allows you to get that little like area. It's like the same in like a boxing match. This guy's jabbing with me. I can't let him jab that easily so i'll jab with him <clears throat> but the but the idea of like stealing things little fun tangent my favorite all-time steal is lawler saying i stole mcdonald's kick yes yeah but um it's great underrated but um one. honorable mention that yeah. fight's great um great. yeah not not the second one the first one which is also a good fight underrated, um underrated, yeah very underrated fight um but the idea of um pulver gomi is also interesting because like you don't see too many, like, good southpaw-southpaw fights in MMA, to be yeah. honest. Actually, not even in boxing either. Like, And these two guys, like, are consistently southpaw. It's a very high-volume fight, too, for the time, too. And, and Gomi kind of being more dynamic and, like, greater hand speed kind of gets the better of it. But, like, it's still um, – it, it's a very good fight, um, as memory would recall. And I think Dan's already summed up why. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's genuinely, like um, – it's. I think at the time it's probably one of the higher level striking fights MMA had at the time too, because it's like you you see both guys just employing different things, just trying to figure out, and, and you can kind of see that with like fights down the road, such as like Pulver versus Sakurai, Sakurai Hansen, Alvarez Hansen, etc. Years later, like you you you'll see like guys at that level like trying to figure each other out. Uh, and so it's like the, these, although like many of these picks are still like maybe more recent 
side, especially on my part, like, you can still go back in time and find, like, great fighters, like, Fedor Krokop, for instance, like, um, one of the all-time great, like, Absolutely. performances in, like, con- pressuring a kicker and, like, because if Krokop's going to kick, you kick him back and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to that stealing and, like, gamesmanship side. But it's, like, old fighters were good, too, and that's really important. Yep, and that was the example that I hinted at from Pride that I was going to omit that should be a classic. But Fedor versus Krokop, it's from heavyweights, uh... Etc. Like it, it, it checks it checks so many boxes, and and it's been on so many of my lists. I, I omitted that, but you're exactly right. Also, if you want to understand why Krokop's game and maybe why he didn't do as well, I feel like you can kind of reverse de-engineer, reverse construct, uh, whatever the word is I'm looking for in slaughtering um, that fight to actually understand more of Krokop. By the way, uh, yeah, no, no, that's it. That's it with my number two. I had to, you know, me I had to get some body punching and some southpaw action in there. And you're right, southpaw versus southpaw matchups are funny because it's not always the best striker, and not all strikers always look at their best because all of us southpaws predicate our games against right-handed fighters. I would argue it's, that us southpaws hate fighting southpaws more than orthodox fighters, and for the love of God, can I'm sorry, commentators, my biggest fucking pet peeve, Can I, I know people are wired to go, lead hand must be left and rear hand must be right, but can we stop calling fucking southpaws rear hands right hand? I feel like that that mistake happens way too much, and it's only corrected half the time. And even when it is corrected, it's still fucking annoying. Sorry, side tangent. That's okay. Yeah, um, I, I will say the best southpaw-southpaw fight in MMA history is Hendrick Slaughter 1. And the only reason that's not on this list is because it is a war and a half. It is. Yeah. TFS also made a commentary over that. At I'm included. We also have an article. And I break down why that fight's amazing. But Great, um, great selection. Great shout. Yeah, um, that's probably the peak of, like, southpaw-southpaw fights in MMA, though. But, um, yeah, I don't have much else to add about Pulver going. It's really good. Well, it's number one time, man. Well, what made your number one? I'm I'm really interested here. Number one has to involve a fight that elevates your opinion of... I I think when I made this fight, I I had a couple of caveats. One, I don't consider these, quote-unquote, my top five, like, best all-time two-way titles, or even the five highest level scientific fights in MMA. I think that's a very, very subjective kind of category. But number one is kind of an exception because it has a very, very good argument for being that. It, it has to be a fight where you see both guys employ like the highest levels of gamesmanship, adjustments, and it elevates like both guys' standards or and your idea as a viewer of how good they are. It's close, it's competitive, it's great. Um, it employs everything that I've already been talking about as far as like showing how good fighters are. And I am of course talking about Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. Just kidding. Um, so the true, the true number one is, um, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway too. Um, and I don't think I could pick a different one. Um, this is also a fight I've written an article over. Um, I've actually written an f- article about both guys. Uh, both of them I'll eventually put on TFS, but they're on my blog. Um, this is a lot. Here we go. So it's impossible to understand this fight without understanding fight one. I've already talked about Holloway a bit earlier, but I'm going to touch upon a couple of things. Holloway's whole thing is to create exchanges and to put the pace on you. He does that a lot behind his jab. He does that a lot behind creating exchanges you only want to engage Holloway in the pocket if you're, like, capable there or can outposition him. 
Volkanovsky is not a pocket boxer. He's not necessarily even great in like overall like exchanges. But what Volkanovsky does have is he understands the idea of um, mix-ups. He understands positioning. He understands why you're doing things in the ring. So um, Volkanovsky is actually a really hard fighter, I think, for people to get. Because one, one important question to ask yourself, or at least that I do with every fighter, is what makes this guy a good fighter? And if I ask people that about Volkanovsky, I think they might have a very, very difficult time answering that question. They might say it's well, he's well-rounded. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, because he is well-rounded, but what exactly makes him good? And I ultimately um, worked with my colleague, Ed Gallo, to formulate an answer to this. But what makes Volkanovsky really, really good is best like summed up by this Aristotelian proverb, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because individually, Volkanovsky um, is not a good fighter because he can do everything. He's a good fighter because he understands his specific like little tool sets and his ideas and crafts a system behind using each individual opponent together to create a system to work. He is alongside like G- GSP, like the guy who embodies like a systemic MMA game. So it's like if one part one part alone doesn't work, but all of it together, then it's good. Uh, so, like, Volkanovsky basically has to also be self-aware to recognize this, too. And so dealing... That's why he's very strategic. That's why he's very good. And that's why he's honestly one of the smarter fighters alive right now. Um, so he recognized in fight one, dealing with Max's jab and entries was important. So a couple of things he did. He hand, he uh, fought Max's lead hand with a hand fight consistently. He, he employed a kicking game off of that hand fight. But what he does is he also like employs counter punching, especially left hooks to like prevent more exchanges. Always is out positioning and trying to get out. Uh, but what he also does is he starts like messing with feints and blitzes and like kind of rotating his hip. But he mixes the punches that he's going to throw, the step-ins he does into kicks, into punches, and all those little things together while nullifying Holloway's game is what allows him to win that fight. And so he comprehensively takes away Max's kind of whole game plan and doesn't allow Max to build until the very last round where it's too little, too late. And exemplifies Max kind of got figured out. So going into this rematch... The, the question with every rematch is, what is going to happen? How are both guys going to approach things? Volkanovski doesn't really have to do anything that different. Maybe he builds upon that. Maybe he tries different things. But the onus is on Max Holloway to fix things. And Max does. And I'm going to say flat out, it is impossible to talk about every little thing that happens in this fight with adjustments, especially with what Volkanovski does. But here's what, But I'm going to try to cover the main bases. So with Max, the biggest thing is Max has a lead hand that is reliant upon the jab. And the very first thing you'll notice as soon as you watch fight two compared to number one is Max is no longer standing that square and like planted. He's kind of standing more upright and he's like kind of using his lead hand out as more of a feeler and a feeder. So there are a couple of reasons for that. He's standing tall. So Volkanovsky's like leg kicks can't reach him that easily. The other, and instead, Volkanovski has to step in to like get closer. 
The other thing is Max is faking throwing the jab and instead using that lead hand as like a fainting like feeler and feeder. He's still getting the range down. He's just not building into like combinations at distance instead. And what he does instead is use that lead hand to create a kicking game. Because if Volkanovski is going to kick, it's like, I'm the longer guy. Why the hell aren't I kicking him too? Ooh. And so he starts attacking the body with kicks. He starts setting up kicks on the outside and getting Volkanovski moving back. And he exploits one of the big problems of Volkanovski's game. Volkanovski, although he's good at recognizing what to do and when to do, he can back up in straight lines pretty easily. And Holloway takes advantage of that. And that's how he sets up, like, that big knockdown with the head kick, because he, like, employs that lead hand and then sets up that head kick. But that's not all. Because of that taller stance, Volkanovski has to close that gap, like I said. Volkanovski is super reliant on blitzes and, like, hopping in, especially behind hooks. And so what Holloway does is, like, so I can't create exchanges with you basically, like, staying away from me. So I'll just make you come to me instead to create those exchanges. So as soon as Volkanovski jumps in, Holloway on the hair trigger hits him with an uppercut left hook. And those are in particular a great choice because the uppercut against a shorter opponent and a left hook's a great punch to chain off of an uppercut. And these that sets up the second knockdown and also lets him control like round two. Ooh. But basically, like, Holloway has basically taken Volkanovski's expectations of, like, his previous game with the hand fight with that lead hand and all the kicking game and turned it against him. And I shouldn't have to say why that's impressive, but I'm going to anyways. Because with MMA especially, you you have fighters who like maybe get comprehensively figured out. But sometimes you see guys who go back and reevaluate their games in like maybe the upper levels of say like boxing or Muay Thai and wrestling. And what they do is they see what didn't work for them, and they see what the other guy did, and they allocate their approaches to face that opponent again and to exploit their expectations. And that's exactly what Max did. It, and that in itself is super, super impressive in its own right. What's equally impressive is that Volkanovski created adjustments to get back into this fight. And there's a lot. because, And it's hard to really um, get that. So, to add a slight addendum, specifically, um, Volkanovsky is someone who understands what he can and cannot do and executes accordingly. So, he basically has limited options at this point compared to previously. It's like, I can't blitz in, I can't kick that with that much space, I can't really have too many options here. So the question is, how can I get better options than the options I have, and instead thinks... How can I get better options with what I have? And so he starts employing little different approaches. So first and foremost, he solves the problems. Instead of backing up in a straight line, he starts moving side to side. But he also starts playing with Holloway's like footwork a bit, where it's like, okay, Holloway wants to set so he can kick and basically push me back. So I'm going to move side to side, and I'm just going to hand fight with my lead hand or I'm going to shift into southpaw and fight with my lead hand from that position to constantly like keep him occupied so I can get out if I get cornered. I'm also going to use that side-to-side -side movement to keep like redirecting and force him to reset and keep having to turn. And every time he turns, I'm going to use that to hand fight and set up an opportunity to strike him into a kick, into a punch, etc. 
the other thing is Volkanovski starts employing his jab. And Volkanovski has a really underrated jab, really, like when he gets it going. Because what he does is he'll start, like, fainting with it, and then he'll just step inside and pop it out. Like, he uses a gazelle jab a lot, which is, like, where you hop in and jump in as a blitz, but you jab instead. And that's a great idea since Holloway's, like, so planted in order to set up those uppercuts. The other thing is, like, he instantly will get out as soon as he jabs, but he's constantly turning Holloway. He's employing more feints. He's employing fake blitzes, jabbing to draw those counters, and has formed like a whole new system of offense off of it. Because as soon as one thing works, he's changed it into the next thing, into the next thing, into the next thing, and this eventually gets him back in the fight. But it does. But it isn't enough to solve like all of the problems Holloway's putting on him. So what ends up happening is you get tons of back and forth little adjustments for the rest of the fight and it's there's so much to even cover i'm just going to give a few examples so volkanovsky's jabbing max holloway starts pu- pulling off like inside slips to cross counter so volkanovsky starts pulling back to counter jab him again and again or varies the rhythm of his jab yeah, but when volkanovsky steps in into like set up those blitzes with the jab Vol- instead of like counter hooking off the jab no, sorry, instead of ha- counter-hooking off the uppercut, Max starts counter-jabbing instead to catch him since Volkanovski's going straight back. Like, the other thing is when Volkanovski jabs, Holloway starts catching it with his rear hand to counter-jab him back or, like, counter-jabbing to the body. Holloway starts faking, like, little knees to set up punches off of them or, like, kicking off of punches, vice versa. Volkanovski basically uses, like, little... Dr- starts to draw Holloway's combinations to employ, like, clinching, and then gets inside trips. Sometimes, like, he'll use the hand trap to start targeting Holloway's lower calf instead. He'll fake level changes to hit, like, left hooks to the body as he turns Holloway. Non-stop stuff happening. And it ends up being really close, notably controversial decision, but I think the one thing that you can say without a doubt is that this is a super high-level fight, and frankly, if you're overwhelmed just hearing all this, I understand. I don't know everything that happens in this fight, but I don't think I can name many fights in MMA, if not any, where I have come out more impressed in recent memory with both fighters. Yeah, man, I feel like I had Gallo over here telling you guys to sign up for the Patreon so you can watch the visual aid because I feel like, you know, we needed the visual aid for that one because there was so much good stuff there. Um <laughs> Basically, um, sorry, I haven't eaten all day, so my, my, my stomach does a thing where it just eats me from the inside, and, and I get lightheaded, and I almost pass out multiple times, so if I'm making faces because of that, um, and in the effort of, 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 uh, of, of get, getting through, um, yeah, basically, I, I thought it was great, great notes on the Holloway adjustments, which aren't talked about too much. I know you guys have done a lot of content, and I try to listen to you sparingly. Because uh, I'm like one of the people, like Ed Gallo says, like you support us, but don't listen to, or you listen to the audio. It's because I just, I'm constantly doing a bunch of stuff all day that I need to listen to audio. Uh, podcasts are a great thing of that, you know. And sometimes I can listen to, like. Is Ed interviews. picking on you? Because I'll have a word with no, him. No, 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 no. He's not. He's not. I'm just saying, like, I'm, I'm totally that guy because I'm, I'm more like audio person, anyways. I don't know where I'm getting at this. See, there's so many. I'm trying to. I'm trying to restring the point. I, I, I was leaving breadcrumbs because you're leaving a lot of great breadcrumbs there. Um. So basically, I'll just say that, like, oh yeah, without well, what I was gonna say is I try not to intake too much because I feel like. Don't get me wrong. Like imitation is like uh, often the biggest form of flattery, 
So like, if, if, I'm sure it happened with you guys. When you guys come up with the term, you'll see other people use it. Um, I know that happens with Jack Slack. Almost everybody and their mothers. I feel like, you know, like I think Mummy Guard was one that was coming around. I'm like, and I love Jack Slack by the way. I think he, he's amazing. Like I put like him, Ryan Wagner's of the world way up there. But if I'm, but because of that, I try not to listen to them because I don't want to bleed through. Because everyone does mimicry, especially if you have like fucking Tourette's. Literally, mm-hmm. uh, you will literally just mimic how someone sounds. How someone you can't get them out of your head. So I purposely try to avoid a lot of those talks because I, I even you know without my special caveat, it's human nature. Every, I see everybody do it, and it's great. It's it's a form of complimentary. It's it's proper. Um, so a lot of this conversation is great because you're actually enlightening me, and I'm like listening to the notes on Holloway's stance, and I'm like, yeah, you're right because that's probably why his head kicks was able to kick it off the same side and able to throw those shots a lot easier because he wasn't so weight dropped. Um, so there was like a lot of play to that, right? And I just think that you nailed it when you said, like, systematizing or new systems for Volkanovski in his offense because that second fight, that's what's apparent to me. Um, A, the turning, because turning allows you, done correctly, allows you to get a beat. And that's something I mm-hmm. constantly talk about is getting a beat on your opponent. Uh, it translates to straight, just not straight grappling, like what, gay grappling? No, like it, pure grappling or pure striking or mixed martial arts, both. That, that's, a, that's a theme that's... That uh, you know, that I believe translates um, uh, as, as as far as uh, getting a beat or you know, um, getting to your opponent's weak side, right? That's grappling and striking. There's very similar theories. You can get to their weak side by beating them on a beat. You've got you you've got that whole timing, right? Um, and that theory even translates to breathing. Hicks and Gracie trying to get his opponent's heart rate o- over is to start uh, to give himself an edge in the match. You get his opponent's heart rate already starting higher than his. And he just kind of gives himself a nice kind of uh, slope uh, to work down for the fight. And the other thing with Volkanovski is that everything, even when they didn't call for it, he had counters too. Like whether it was doing a lot of basic things, not just the lunging jab, but or the gazelle jab, as, as you put it, but the mm-hmm. finishing with the lead hand. It's something you hear high-level strikers finish with your jab. And I feel like that's much more important Um to cover ground and extend combinations to cover ground and cover reach disadvantages if you're a shorter fighter like Volkanovski. So he does that kind of like like left jab hook hybrid where it's like that long jab. He almost he almost winds up for it like it's a hook, but then shoots it straight out, you know, and he's finishing. So he's got whatever to enter space and then he's even giving more of a, a more of a, a more of a, a length by uh, attaching those punches to it. And conversely, when he's stepping backwards, when someone's on the attack, he does something that I'm sure he picked up from Adesanya for when he does, he would start off in southpaw, kick, and then have the punch entries from Orthodox. Or if he shifted back and ended in southpaw, he did the Adesanya thing where when he shifts into a southpaw stance, he always has that preloaded cross counter as he steps at an angle. It's always there, whether he needs it or not. And it was those layers of feints, turns, and counters that I felt like was... I don't want to say closing the door because I know that's a technical term with hooks and whatnot, but like in boxing, but like it felt like he was closing the door on exchanges as far as just this is done. This is you unless you want to come forward, you're coming forward on my terms now. I think it's closing not, the door is a fair way of expressing okay, it, yeah. honestly. I felt like it was just a bunch of within the systems that he created, like you said, it was a bunch of examples of that. And um, I rambled myself there, but like that's to me when I look at that fight. Um, I can't, I can't, I can't explain it or, or, or cite as much, um, but that's kind of what I saw happening and what 
made Volkanovski to me special because he starts off his career as more of a forward pressuring, you know, like a, you know, like a, you know, uh, I don't want to say Khabib, but you know what I'm saying? Like he's really like putting guys against the fence. He's throwing them. It's like a more rougher version if you were to be crude. Like, oh, this guy's, he likes to wrestle in grounded pound guys. You know, if you look at like more of his crude fights coming up. Earth and, wrestling. Here's yeah. a brush of the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Embracing the ground. Yeah. So that's why I, I love about this turnaround from Volkanovski. Um, and, of course, like technical nerds like ourselves seem to be the only people that appreciate that turnaround, but it, it, it is something. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to my whole explanation of this and you were a little overwhelmed, don't worry. Sincerely, don't worry. That is a super complicated fight that Absolutely. I basically just simplified, and I don't even know if I did a good job. It is just it is one of the more complicated high-level fights I've seen in MMA between arguably the two best fighters in the sport right now. And honestly, I have no idea who would win a third fight based upon it, but I want to see it. It is just everything I've listed so far, if you did follow along and if you at the very least can understand how enthusiastic I am, that should tell you something. It, it is. It's one of those fights where it's like a, it's as deep as you want to dig, you know, it really is. It's as deep as you want to dig. Uh, and that's a compliment by the way. Uh, so that well worthy of being number one. Um, I, on the other hand, went more toward the violent end of the spectrum for my number one. So, uh, this one is, again, I don't know, Simpleton's Choice or whatnot, but, like, for me, there's a bit of a bias in both the rewatch and going back to the setup of the fight on my pre-fight breakdown, where every once in a while, I'll, like, write an analogy I'm proud of, and I think that's my only strength as a writer. It's not the writing, because format, I'm terrible at. If you've read my writing, you know. But, like, people who encourage me to do writing, even, like, professors in college before I ran out of money. No, I did not get any degrees, folks. It's okay. Uh, but um, I was pushed a lot toward creative writing because my imagination. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so every once in a while, I'll come up with these analogies, which is fine. But it, it, what makes them fun is when there's technical tie-in, and real technical tie-in, and it actually plays out, right? And... I've heard a lot of car crash used. In fact, I was just—I had a fight site, a podcast on in the background that was just breaking down the fight that Justin Gaethje had before this. But uh, I will say, um, I don't know where it came from. I don't think it was used in particular for anything. But in the pre-fight before Justin Gaethje meets Adi Alvarez, I broke this fight down. I did my in-depth, but... So there's a long of it, but the short of it at the end, when I start rounding the drain in my pick, as I do in my breakdown articles, I said, this fight is essentially going to be a high-speed chase where wheels and doors are going to be falling off as this goes because it's just going to be so violent um, with these cars ramming into each other to get across the finish line. And it's not going to be who gets across the finish line first. It's going to be whose car holds up. And I feel like that is, at least for me, maybe my immature, you know, not whatever uh, seasoned sensibilities, whatever, weird sensibilities. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I just felt like it was kind of perfect. I know it's more on the violent and dumb side, but there is, you know, you want to talk about uh, tactics and adjustments. Um Again, 
for fighters like Silva or Fitch not known for that, and I tried to give them credit for the time they did show it. Uh, conversely, a similar theme with fights that are maybe more known for a war, but there's actually there's actually some technical layers there. Now, nothing like, like a Volk Holloway 2 style, but more than we realize. And you could argue that it was one more than the other, which was Eddie Alvarez. But upon rewatch, I would argue that Justin Gaethje was making some adjustments in there that he doesn't get credit for. It obviously didn't garner him the result, but that doesn't mean we still shouldn't talk about it. Um, and uh, and yeah, essentially, you do get that you do get that car analogy, and um, pretty much uh, Justin is going right at the leg kicks because we've seen Cowboy really note that boxing centric stance and how it can be opened on that. Tori Alvarez in particular, right? Alvarez can also be caught cold, which is part of the reason why I actually picked him because. If it came down to my analogy, at that time, I thought that Gaethje was the more durable car. He had been rocked and almost finished in, in fights before this, but he hadn't, whereas Alvarez not only had, but, you know, he was, like, getting caught cold early and not recovering, like with McGregor or with Poirier, you know. So there was a lot of doubt. That and also, this is one of the few fights where it was, like, uh, not quite as scary as the time where I, I ran into Hector Lombard and he got my number and uh, terrorized me. Uh, but, like... We had Justin Gaethje in the studio before this fight, and the whole time I'm wondering if he, he read my breakdown and knows I picked Michael Johnson to beat him because I uh, he was giving me the fucking death stare in the studio the whole time. And I know this because I'd be like, I'm going to walk over here now on the other side, and he's on camera with the interview. There's no way he's going to pay attention to me uh, or give me a death stare, and if he is, I know he's looking at me now. And sure enough, no matter where I walked, as I was background working cameras while the interview was going on in the studio... Motherfucker was giving me a death stare, and I'm like, I'm not picking against Justin Gaethje. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's why I picked him. And then by the time the Poirier fight came around, I was like, fuck it, no, I was right about Gaethje and the Southpaws and Southpaws who counter. And Poirier had had enough um, of examples from both Johnson and Alvarez of what to do. That even though it was one of my favorite fights of all time of that year, um, this is why I picked Alvarez versus Gaethje over that because it's more impressive. Because one guy, you know. I, Arguably, you could argue maybe he has a better fight. Uh, the other guy shows the keys to it, but right in the middle here is this sweet spot that is Alvarez Gaethje, at least for me. Um, and it's one of Eddie Alvarez's best performances where he knows he's going to get hit in the leg, and he says in the post fight that like he's like we actually trained Southpaw for this, knowing that one of my one of my wheels was going to go bad. You know, like he knew that it was going to be a, a car crash analogy too. And secondly, he also had his his sparring partners go at him and a way to take care of that as he says in the post fight interview was going to the body again another underrated um thing going to the body in general on face value but for more purpose and specifics going to the body to stop pressure right we talk about going to the body to chase those annoying opponents who are like real trunk movement -y and and fleet of foot right you want to score on them still well when they're coming at you relentlessly the it, it's a different philosophy but the, the body punching is still very important and you see Eddie Alvarez really start leaning on that early. So what Gaethje starts to do is, he's like, fuck, man, I'm getting actually pieced up. My guard's actually getting pieced up in boxing range here. So I'm going to try to get back to my kicks, which he does get back to his leg kicks. And he even actually tries to set up and go high later in the third round. So he, he is, as much as Gaethje can build off kicks, trying to build off kicks, not just, as shout out to my man Tuman, big punch, strong leg kick, come forward. Um, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just solely that. And conversely, it was all the way out or all the way in where he would go into the clinch. And Gaethje was actually getting better 
the better the body knees early, you forget. He was getting a lot of better of the strikes in and out of the clinch breaks as well, um, as well as in the entanglements, right? Uh, however, as time goes on, and Gaethje, more dramatically than Aldo, obviously, has the same problem where he fights in pockets because he puts all of his power, right? Uh, so much different than Aldo, not as technical, but at, at, at problematically, uh, thematically similar in, in spirit. And once that keeps up, the clinch goes from a place where he's actually quietly doing really good work in the beginning, Justin Gaethje, people forget that, to that's where he not just gets finished, but even before he gets finished, the fight turns around there. That's where Alvarez starts landing body knees and going. Because Alvarez, being a game competitor and reading the, the, uh, reading, uh, the way of the fight, if you look at it, Gaethje's energy is not as, it, it's bad and it goes through, but he actually recovers pretty well before he gets finished. He recovers pretty well in the pocket, current pocket that he's fighting in, and he actually hits Alvarez pretty hard a couple times and doesn't take as much hard shots in a short succession leading up to the finish as you think. And I hope that makes sense because I say all of that to set up that it demonstrates just how in tune Alvarez is, how much of a savvy veteran he is with that unspoken language of the fight that we spoke about earlier, that reading the tempo of a fight, he knew. It, did, it, did, it didn't matter what just happened in recency bias. That the, the big picture accumulation um, knew that, that, that his window w w was popping up, the tide had turned, the body work had paid off, and now the clinch that was Gaethje's uh, offlet of pressure would now become a, a, a trap. It would be a, out of the frying pan into the fire um, to get out of that body punching and boxing range. And of course, Gaethje... Loses his first fight, which he... And I loved it because Gaethje knew that day was going to come, just like Alvarez uh, knew what this fight was going to entail and take out of him, which is why he never freaked out when his legs swelled. He never freaked out when he had that weird hematoma on his face um, from the power Gaethje was hitting him with. And uh, it was just one of those fights, you know? Like, it was weird. Like, uh, I feel like it was closer scoring, but it was like one of those things where as I rewatched it, I'm like, I feel like clearly, especially the way I... I, I how I score... Um, and while still trying to stay within how I interpret the criteria, I should say, uh, Alvarez uh, could easily win win two rounds on judges' scorecards, but visibly, you know, even though the numbers and the dynamicness wasn't uh, wasn't quite as much there, visibly, I mean, Alvarez's face wore it so much that not only could you excuse cards, I'm not trying to relitigate it. The point was it showed how much of a dangerous gambit it was. Two, knowing you know, just knowingly going, oh, it's a dangerous fight is one thing, but knowing it's a dangerous fight where I have, I'm gonna lose a limb to win. I have to decide what limb I'm gonna lose. That's that's just it. There's no, there's no clean way to winning this fight. You're gonna lose a limb. That's a real tough thing mentally to do. And, and Alvarez did that. I um, I'm gonna totally shill out for myself for a second. Um. So for thefightsite.com, we recently did a series for our 200 patrons, top five fights in UFC history. Number five was Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje. I wrote, I wrote an article breakdown, and I'm glad Dan here broke down the clinch entry because that was very, very important to that fight. So the whole premise of that is basically Alvarez starts by out fighting, and he quickly discovers Gaethje's like pressure footwork inability to cut the ring off and set up counter hooks off his high guard is really, really dangerous. So even when Alvarez engages in the pocket, Gaethje makes him like, uh, realize I have to mind my P's and Q's like Poirier, but had to realize that too, that it's like, I'm better in the pocket than Gaethje, but I have to be careful because he's very accurate and he's very, very, very powerful. 
Oh, and so those few things force Alvarez to adjust. And, like, the body shots are one thing, but the other thing is how Alvarez uses his jab to control range a lot. And I talk about this a lot in my article. And so Gagey starts doing his jabbing back with him um, and then using that clinch because what he'll do is he'll jab and he'll turn that into a single collar tie to bring him into the clinch and then knee him. And like Dan said, yeah, Alvarez had to make that decision. I have to be willing to take one to give one. And if I can deal body shots back to him and keep making him work, that'll wear him down. And literally you can see that halfway through the second round where that momentum turns, where it's like, oh, the clinch is a danger zone and Gaethje has to work on the back foot. And he still finds a little way to hit Alvarez back by framing into leg kicks. But, like, it basically becomes a battle of, like, hey, is his leg going to die or is his ribs going to explode? And the answer is, nah, knee to the head. So neither of those. So this fight was a failure. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so so that, um, yeah, it's a tremendous fight. It's not really, like, a two-way technical, but as far as showing technical skills in, like, a firefight, I mean, yeah, it's tremendous. It's a very high-quality fight, and... um. I, I've talked about veteran savvy a lot. That is one of those, but it also demonstrates like how tough Gaethje is to actually be. Something I'll vouch for because I'm really biased for him. But Alvarez is one of my boys, and if someone had to beat him the first time, it, it's like yeah. And also Trevor Whitman's face at the end is like, so this is what it takes to beat my monster. Imagine what happens if I turn him into something really good, more than he is. And it's like, but um. Yeah, I, I, that is a great fight. Well, I, I have a new take on that smile, too, because what I heard, too, as well, uh, was that he would, Trevor Whitman was really trying to impart things that would save Gaethje, um, and that we would see him adjust more to, of the countering back foot Gaethje, right, of, of late. But Trevor is really trying hard to impart those things. It's just Gaethje isn't listening. And Gaethje, even in interviews after this, would say that he had to, you know, Trevor's been training him and do, to do these things for a while now it's just that he was just obviously stubborn and needed to go to the point of losing to actually learn those lessons so i i found it real interesting sub layer of if you listen to the corners and you just see the the, the proper tools which is why that whitman i'm guessing is why he's not surprised when his man goes down because he was like i told you now this is where you learn and you almost see that on his face and yeah it's not like super technical but i think i'm more like i said i'm more leaning and cheating with my um my car analogy, because when we just look, when we talk about tactics and adjustments at a high level, um, man, this fight is just, it feels just, you know, it's really crude, but it's, it's, it's raw gambling, baby. You know, it's raw gambling with your body parts and, um, and using highly skilled, highly violent stuff, obviously, you know, hence Eddie Alvarez saying this fight was about the violence. And, uh, and again, a lot of ways that this fight could make a lot of lists. So maybe, you know, not the best to you know uh, you know make an excuse for, but I I don't know man I it, when I keep when I kept running it on my list here it kept it kept rising to the top so there it is. We we both cheated. I did Vartanian Shibley earlier in the first ten minutes or war, so th- this counts. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Nice, nice. All right, so uh, I'll I'll wait to recap our list, but I want to jump over to listener list so we can um get on out of here and then we'll touch up on anything they missed. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see, I, I, uh, trying to get through all my, uh, like I told Dan, I made a mistake about tweeting about Bruce Lee, you know what that does, 
you know what that gets. So I got I gotta parse through some things real here, real quick here. All right, so we got um, hey, Hacks gave us a shout with the Dan Gang there. Um, shout out to Hacksarized uh, from your site. Uh, Hacksarized, got... the man who actually wants to be a VTuber. None of you probably know what that is, but that's okay. I don't know, man. I'm a fucking you know borderline boomer at this point. So uh, at <laughs> TSOV Pod, the sound of violence. Shout out to those guys. They just hit their 200th episode, uh, by the way. That's big. All can of I... you subscribe to them. They do good work. Very good. Um, can I pick the UFC lightweights in the 2001, 2002, specifically Jens, BJ, Eve, and Cow and Din Turney matchups? They were all gritty, action packed. And surprising every time. Um, that, that's an old school shout, man. That that, that tournament especially. Uh, that Cal Uno, that forgotten fight, the draw that BJ Penn and Cal Uno had, that Penn still should have won, but it was a very technical fight. And I would say Matt Serra, BJ Penn, in that tournament that you cite, um, had some deceptive layers. Again, you got to be watching within the context of that time. But we're watching both guys uh, do more leg kicks than I've ever seen Matt Serra or BJ throw in their whole career. They throw in that fight, by the way. Really random note. Um, yeah, uh, let's see here, uh, CJ Good at Fight Game Picks, he says Masvidal Larkin. Okay, well, Masvidal nice Larkin, Masvidal Larkin's fun because, uh, you, you see a lot of that transitional stuff, especially the third round. The third round's really fun because, like, um, like, it's kind of a battle between, like, Larkin's light kicks and Masvidal drawing counters, and then it becomes this crazy clinch battle in, like, round yeah. three. Very yeah. fun fight. Yeah, that clinch battle was so random. I'm, I think I was at that one live. That was Garbrandt Almeida. Uh, Whitaker Romero won. I, I love it. You know, again, I wanted to go with one or two. They both have those different kind of narratives. And, like, again, I'm a sucker for, like, Whitaker Romero won was my fight of the year for that year. Um, because, I'm again, like, the reason why Alvarez Gaethje is my number one, I'm a sucker for when things are falling apart, people. And they have to find ways to go. Whitaker Romero one was kind of um, an honorable mention for me, but um, I, I don't think it has as many layers as some of the ones I mentioned. Um, Whitaker yes. Romero two has a lot of layers, yes. and if you want to know what, you can read our fight site breakdown of it. Yeah, I actually wrote Whitaker Romero one and two honorable mention, but I put a circle over two uh, for this list because I felt that that would apply more. Um, you know, if I had to pick between those two, of course, I omitted that. Um, like like a bunch of others, uh, but uh, that I could have maybe made an excuse for. Aldo Holloway won, which we've kind of talked about at nauseum, despite not being on the list. I clearly wanted that on my list. I would have had two on my list, okay. but Fair I didn't enough. want more than one name. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. And uh, and and yep. And uh, Jan Aldo, which was a, a great one. I was counting for you to have that on your list as well. I'm glad you did. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. Fedor Krokop was the other one that I omitted um, that would have been on my list if we if I was even attempting to do some kind of definitive um, for class. Yeah, I example. consider that I, I consider that kind of more of a performance side than like a t two way technical, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, it's because it's just kind of one. It's a it's a big basic moment though. It's a one basic dynamic kind of drawn out and a, just a more of a classic lesson upon those terms. So yeah, I get what you're saying. Cater Burgos, mm -hmm. he says, that's a good shout. Oh, uh, Cater Burgos was an honorable mention. Um, it, it's a good fight of uh, one of the favorites of my um, co-worker, Saram. And it's a fight I totally could have done, but I didn't. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's, uh, I, hey, shouts to uh, shouts to uh, Shriram over there, too. I feel like him and Ed, man, those guys are like marathon podcasting over there on your guys' uh, site. Yeah, um, past bed and depressed, Saram. You know, 
Yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, the world's greatest duo. Hey, like the co from last show, uh, Chris Rini at Rini MMA, Weidman and Machida, which we covered, and uh, Rose versus Joanna. Uh, I'm assuming he means the second one, which, yeah, yeah that's a pretty good one. I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but, um, yeah, it's 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 a pretty good women's MMA fight in terms of, like, some technical depth. Another one I was there for live. I would have went with, and it nothing to do with Rose, by the way. That's a great pick. Uh, I, I still probably maybe would have went with the JJ Andrade, but uh, Andrade, you know, not the most uh, adjustments, but she just provided so many of things that allowed um, you know, Jacek to solve things in beautiful ways, from kicking going backwards, single legs to stand, um, so on and so forth. It's a really good one. You madman trying to pronounce her last name. Andrade, Andrade, and Jacek, which one? The latter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's weird. Yeah. Yon, at least I'm not doing like a Goldie. Yon J. Jack. Mark Fellows. This is Joanna J. Jack. Mark Fellows, who looks like he's got a Sound of Violence avatar. Uh, Abby. That's awesome. Avatar Abby. Wow, redundant. If I had to choose one fighter who best ribbon. Oh, that's Tank. He's talking about things. Uh, Tank Abbott versus John Matua was technically a fight, right? Most barroom ballers would be proud of Tank's sprawling takedown defense, power shots, and assassin like accuracy in the final few head strikes. I don't think we can disagree with that. Truly that's a scholar. Much, again, okay. see, th- th- that's what I love about these top fives. You can really justify almost anything, really. You can really get creative here and bend it. Um, Goose at Atlas 8, Aldo Mendez 2. Um, uh, we've talked about, and that's obvious. Read, read Ryan Wagner's yes. article. Just read Ryan's article. It's as good as you can get. That's another, you know, um, uh, obvious one that I omitted, obviously. Should, should be on the list. Uh, Jan Rivera, uh, you uh, do a really good job of breaking that one down. Um, Whitaker Romero 2, we talked about. Cruz versus Dillashaw. I like that shout. So Cruz Dillashaw, I actually have a lot of thoughts about that fight, and, and I might write about it one day. But um, okay. it, it's it's kind of a weird, weird fight, honestly. Um, and it, it's it's hard to explain in like really concise terms, but um, I think it's it's just weird. That's all I'll say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'll be, I'd be curious to read that, though, too. Holloway, and I've rewatched it, especially with my eyes now. Uh, Holloway versus Poirier, too. Um, um, I wouldn't have that as a two-way technical, but it is one of the highest octane fights ever. Yeah, yeah, same here, because it's not enough adjustments, and then not even enough as I like to cheat, where, like, if you could focus on one thing. Uh, I think there are adjustments in it. It's just more of an octane, like, ridiculous war. Yeah, yeah, and not, like... More just like adjustments as far as like how you want to good ways good ideas on how to be Max Holloway you know like within those contexts and stuff I think a lot of the uh, a lot of it comes at least for me uh, offhand I didn't rewatch that one Hendricks versus Saint Pierre I've rewatched that in a while actually that's a that's a good shout um, honorable mention on that one um, so was Lawler McDonald one actually yep. uh, but we already mentioned that yep. Uh, Weidman versus Machida, we mentioned, and Vartanian versus Triple A two. That's the one where he lost by split decision. It was closer, right? Uh, that's the one that I'm pretty sure Vartanian got robbed. Um, because he pro- should have won four rounds to one, but uh, what do I know? Woo! I have to rewatch that one. I do remember when that went down. Uh, very cool stuff from Vartanian in that fight, though. Armin Saryukin's stand account uh, has Shogun Machida 1, which I think the 
uproar gets takes away from the technical narrative. Shogun's showing us, giving us some of the first glimpse of really how to beat um, actual good karate style strikers in MMA. Trailing leg kicks. Do them. Yep. yep. He kind of lays the, the blueprint out there. Um, so again, I don't know much of adjustments, but it's really a very tangible lesson in the MMA lexicon. That's not just specific to a fighter. So that, that obviously uh, is a layer that uh, I'm maybe overly counting, but counts a lot for me. He also has Makachev versus Saryukian. Again, he is Saryukian's stand account. I do sense Saryukian. I haven't rewatched this. I know it's technical grappling, but it's uh yeah, it's a, a pretty good technical. It's a it's a good technical grappling match. It's been about a few months since I saw it, but it's pretty good. I'd have to rewatch it to draw out if there was one. Assuming like a, an overall theme to the grappling, like for example, the countering example I went with for um, uh, Saku and Newton. Uh, but I will say, like, for example, like, grappling ones that almost made my list was uh, Carlos Diego Fajeda versus uh, Gregor Gillespie. I went on a tangent on that where I was like, that's too much of a war, obviously. So I didn't put that on there. But I went on a tangent saying I felt like that was a better fight than CDF versus um, Benil. Uh, not by by a ton, but like a better as far as overall fight. Like, if we're giving a fight of the night award, I feel like mm-hmm. CDF uh, Gillespie. However, we're talking about technical and in a fight like this. A lot more, a lot more adjustments, a lot more to take from Benil versus CDF. I will say that. Not enough to make my list either, but just want to throw those examples out there. Mm-hmm. Um, next person, MMA Ball, at MMA underscore Ball. Holloway Volkanovski 2 could be a good one. Oh, I think it could. We gave you a lot We gave you a lot of discussion on there. And a lot of stuff yeah, that I I'm going to go I back th- and watch, I, th- I think that would be a pretty good fight to talk about. What about this one? Uh, some guy named Ed with the blue check mark says, Ningano Lewis was very technical. Oh, very technical. Oh, in fact, it may well be one of the greatest chess matches heavyweight has ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it's the spiritual successor to Till Wonderboy, according to Ed. So thank you for that, Ed. That's a uh, super, super technical. There you go. Um, yeah, uh, I think that that's uh, that's it for listener lists. Um, a- anything off the top of your head that you want to mention before we get out of here? Um, if you can tolerate anything that i've said and you like what you heard if you enjoyed thank you so much for listening um really appreciate it this was a fun topic for me um you can support us on the fight site uh we have a patreon discord where we talk about fights and stuff we also talk about non-fights and stuff bunch of quirky weird people like every mma fan on there unless you have antipathy for that kind of thing you know what i'm saying but um we 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 like uh, talking about fights. We like giving credit for good fights. I have a podcast where I watch a bunch of old school non MMA fights, um, basically called Pugilistic Classics, that I try to do every single week and just watch something really, really cool. We have a lot of content, usually an MMA podcast a week, usually something else. But um, our, our site just tries to produce a lot of content that isn't really out there in too much abundance. And, well, if you contribute about three dollars i think it's three dollars it's either three or five i can't do math um you can hang on our discord you can support us um but hey i can't force you to do anything it's a capitalist country unless you don't live here but you know um i appreciate you listening if you did well i appreciate you being here when i'm not gonna let you go that fast i'm still gonna name off a couple more fights and i'm gonna ask you about a fight little surprise question here uh, before we get out of here. But, uh, yes, I sentiment everything you said. Support the fight site. 
their work. And, you know, the, the, the Fight Site feed will get you a lot of podcasts. But, yes, I really do. I'm not just blowing smoke up Dan's ass. He does a great job. He will give you a lot of fights uh, to go back and, you know, outside of the MMA, by the way, if you want to educate, educate yourself. Um, a lot of great examples, uh, a lot of explanations and examples, just like fights to go back to watch. So uh, I definitely sentiment that. Um, I'm just going to go through the stuff that I wrote on my list because no, no one mentioned these ones. And maybe I should have put some of these on with the way some of the, you know, now that I'm thinking back on this. But for me, some of these were, a lot of these were too slow. Um, but like McDonald, like great jabs, uh, jab examples um, in two McDonald fights of where he's on the bad end and the good end. McDonald Safadine, it's underrated. It's not talked about enough. Every time Safadine goes to switch a stance, McDonald jabs him, and it's super smart. Again, it's knowing that your opponent's going to take a beat to adjust to a stance, and knowing that not all of the stances are going to be as good as the other. So let's test it out every time he does it. Let's disrupt his rhythm. Um, but in McDonald Thompson, it's one of the greatest fights for uh, examples of outside foot awareness and discipline. You can literally just watch Stephen Thompson's feet slash their feet slash specifically for the outside foot position, and Thompson disciplinedly literally takes it for almost the whole 25 minutes straight and takes away, uh, which aside from McDonald, you know, being up in his head, recently getting his nose smash, um, it, it really explains a lot of why he is so gun shy in his head and kind of lost at piecing his game together. Um, any anything on those two? Uh, I wouldn't have had them, but uh, I think they're, like, interesting, like, topics in regards to Rory McDonald's career. Yeah. But that's just, a longer discussion. Again, and that's more just not too much two-way technical, but it's just more of a technical mm-hmm. lesson being drawn from that fight. Yeah. That I will often Te- reference technical, that fight, less, like... technical lessons and performances are also interesting to talk about, too. But, yeah, that's that's a different topic. Um, a lot of them came through trilogies. Uh, again, I was not just preparing for like two top fives this week, but also had to do a third top five, which was a trilogy thing that's not yet released for Junkie. Um, so I was seeing a lot of this with this topic in the back of my head. It seems obvious to state, but like trilogies, we're going to see the two-way technicals probably happen a lot more because these fighters have a longer way to figure each other out and adjust. So you've got like Sam Stout versus Spencer Fisher trilogy, where it's essentially... Spencer Fisher, or Sam Stout figuring out that his left hook actually works really well against Southpaws. He just needs that his fight um, is, is not fight IQ, his fight experience and his takedown defense to catch up to him, to deal with the Southpaw. Spencer Fisher, the vet savvy. Um, Liddell Couture 3 was like surprisingly, there's actually like some surprising um, tactics in there and even in their fights. And I felt even better about referencing my breakdown of uh, steep ADC uh, and referencing that it's, it was before it happened that it was going to smack similar to um, an, another double champ trilogy which was you know Randy Couture and Liddell there's actually some similar things in there sucks for Randy Couture man he gets his eye poked in like the second fight and literally after like right after they go time back in from the doctors he gets hit with a check hook from that on that same eye with that exchange and that's the beginning of the end and in the third fight that I wrote down he's actually being really tactical and he's like okay Wrestling worked in the first fight, but I, I got impe- I got impatient. I got caught in the second. So he's actually like using like really really good feints to his credit, but he feints so hard that he slips on the Zion's. Uh, uh, he slips on the Zion's. Uh, Randy does on the Zion's uh, stamp or whatever the the advertisement, and then he slips and then gets hit with a freaking like perfect shot by Liddell and goes out again. And I was like, oh, well, that yeah, was all for nothing. Sure. Chuck Liddell, known for three things, his cocaine addiction, the eye pokes, and a very, really, really bad fighter nickname. Yep, yeah. yeah. I'm so, going to get canceled. 
Well, no, it's, you're not. It's, it's, it's all fine. I, that's why I thought it was just hilarious to watch, like, you know, one of the more smarter fighters of the generation, especially of those weight classes, etc. and Randy, like, try to go through this thought, and it just didn't matter. He was just... <laughs> um, I wrote Usman Covington. I didn't have enough time to go back and watch it. I wasn't sure if there was... What the shifts were with the body dynamics, as much as I remembered, or how much back and forth there was? Um, It's back and forth. I think it borders more upon a firefight. Covington kind of just throws for the sake of throwing a lot, but he's relentless. Usman makes active adjustments behind the jab and like mm-hmm. body shots, but it isn't really like a two-way technical. But it is a fun fight. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm glad I didn't put it on or go back to watch it then. Uh, Aldo Volkanovski, that's more of like Volkanovski than Aldo, as far as the, what I draw from it. Um, it's more of like an introduction to what's to come with Volkanovski for me, the way I look at that fight. You see a lot of things just done really well, and then, of course, applied to a guy that's just a freaking, you know, an ultimate Rubik's Cube of a testing piece. Um, so that that's just fun in that way. Um, who a Little Nog just had the same fight over and over again. That was fun. It wasn't too technical. They just had fun swings and adjustments that were just the same over and over again. Um, Edson Barbosa was another fighter that I felt like Aldo was like, he presents, it's not as technical, obviously, not as depth defensively, all these things. I'm not comparing them directly, but what I am saying is that there is a dangerous yet somewhat clear, if you're looking at it from like a really uh, Occam's razor, like you said previously, a point of view on how to beat certain guys if you want, uh, or what they like to do. Um, and obviously it's way harder and more technical of a question with Aldo, but with Barbosa it was much more straightforward. So you get a lot of those. I would say probably either uh, Kevin Lee Barbosa or Michael Johnson Barbosa would be some of my more favorite ones. I know Benil Dariush had a really uh, had a, had a deceptively uh, competitive fight before he got um, knocked out. Yeah, I think uh, Saram vouches a lot for Johnson mm-hmm. um, versus Barbosa a lot. Um, I've not seen it, but then again, Saram shills out for MJ um, a lot, so um, I, I might check it out in the future. I can't comment, though. I, I was also biased because that was one of my early betting fights where I was, I think, like, I got, like, plus 230 or something on Michael Johnson. Like, this is way too hard. He's a southpaw, and he's going to pressure him. And, uh, the, you know, he recently was showing some uptrends from going with, at that time, Black Zillion, so I was all over that on MJ. And, uh, and so I'm a little biased there, too. I, I feel... I feel sure um, we, we, we tend to like a lot of those fighters. <laughs> um, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Belcher Everyone Pajar- should like who they like. Yeah. Bolter Pajaras, but that's A, too popular. B, uh, you got to have a lot of adjustments or a decent adjustment lesson if it's going to be a one-rounder, like I did with Gomi and Pulver, which was a 10-minute one-rounder. This was not, and again, it was only mainly the lesson on how to beat Pajaras as far as technical lesson. It wasn't really Pajaras adjusting to anything. Um, I will write, mention this, GSP Pen 1 and GSP Diaz. So UFC 58 and 100 UFCs later exactly, UFC 158, I think, are some really good underrated GSP examples. You got the basic adjustments in real basic MMA form with GSP BJ, right? Not working out on the feet. Let me take him down. And, you know, yada, yada, these really basic adjustments. And then GSP Diaz, I went back to rewatch. We forget how technical that fight is. That fight really made both those guys dig deep into their skill sets. You've got Diaz trying to come out orthodox for the first round to throw him off uh, before he starts switching to southpaw. Um, you've got a lot of the, the, the you know, when, when he does get his takedowns, Diaz will throw up attacks in order to turtle, which I always cite. But what I forgot to mention was you just really get to see uh, how good 
you know, when I mentioned planted that seat with Carlos Newton playing Saku's turtle, how good GSP was at playing guys' turtle position. Like, he's doing the shin over the leg to prevent the leg lock that Saku uh, caught Newton with, you know. He's doing all these little things that are just so beautiful. Um, when to reshift his weight in, when to hand fight and, and grab wrists. Like, there's just so much little technical things in there. Uh, both guys find certain success going to the body, and they take turns taking that idea from each other of going to the body to open up their other strikes when things aren't working, uh, it, which especially I, I like that Nick Diaz does. He actually lowers his stance, starts punching to the body more. Coincidentally enough, in the third round, I believe, defends like three takedowns and is able to get some momentum going for him. Like you, There's so many layers that it, it made for emotionally. We were wanting so much. It's our favorite fighters, the buildup. Diaz 209 in his prime. We thought it was going to be this crazy action fight, and we're hoping for that, you know, the return of those kind of fights for GSP. Um, so maybe it was that disappointment, but this fight clearly close to making it on the list with how much as I'm talking about it. I don't know, no opinions on GSP Diaz? Uh, it's been too long since too I've long. seen it. I will I say, um, I'll get crucified a bit for this, but Condit Diaz is actually kind of an underrated one believe it or not in terms of like that. both guys showing things condit campman uh one and two are also pretty fun oh yeah yeah campman super i mean i know it's one of the guys that rogan was always known for saying tech abusing by calling technical but i love me some martin campman there's some bias there so i always appreciate yeah. his game yeah i'd also uh, add lawler lawler brown's actually a really fun technical brawl yeah, yeah that's i almost talked about that one uh last two i just wrote on here uh Haas Dacus just really reminded me. I was was really reminded me of a fight like a change my body work, but I don't know why I wrote that down. It wasn't really two way technical, but both but uh, Haas really fought against type for that one. And I didn't know. I don't know how this translates, um, but I I wrote down for shits and giggles. Was Maya Askren uh, in any way <laughs> from the grappling aspect of it? I know the striking I'm was not kind of a shit show we can laugh I'm, at. I'm but. not. I'm not the person you should ask questions about Ben Askren to because uh, I don't like him. Yeah, yeah. I was I was gonna say it's it's hard to tell because there's a polarization of Askren and there's the fanboy aspect of Maya, that bloodies the fight for me and many I'm sure right. So uh, I I have no clue, but I was just I think I wrote that down in a scramble when I was trying to compensate for some grappling ones when you told me that you might be light on that on your list. I was just yeah, that's a trying no to funnel deal. some grappling stuff. But yeah, I should have given was you should have said Makovsky Jorgensen. Should have said that. There we go. That. I know. I know. I I had a I think I had a Ortiz Makovsky on on one, some scrambles in there as well. I, Oh, oh, Dustin Benavides. Benavides Ortiz, Ortiz, too, yeah, is a great Yeah, that was it. Maybe that was it, too. Dustin Ortiz, you can't go wrong. Uh, with can't the go wrong. Let me have it. On that edit, we certainly did not take, uh, on this edit here, we certainly did not talk about a street fight that didn't, didn't may or may not have happened. So apologize for the edit. This episode was a bit long anyways. <laughs> but uh, this was this was good, man. This was fun. And maybe we'll share some more, uh, maybe we'll share some stories that we uh, maybe we, we can share legally uh, someday, sir. It's yeah. It's not that I can't share it legally. It's just I'm afraid if someone from my personal life discovers this. No, it's okay. I just uh, as long as uh, as, long, as long as the little one isn't traumatized. Listen, the trip. little one's fine. He, I'm already indoctrinating him into being just like me, a sociopathic narcissist. Oh so you know, here we go. Here we go, folks. Well, it, thank you for making time in that busy schedule of sociopathic narcissist to come on this show. And, uh, no, just kidding, man. You're obviously um, one of my favorites, man. We, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're somebody I, I appreciate in this space for many reasons, sir. So thanks for coming on. This was fun. A lot of technical mm -hmm. talk, but hopefully we gave you guys some fun fights to really go back and look at. So, mm -hmm. 
All right, uh, you can find him at TypewritingDA for thefightsite.com. That's thefight-site.com. Uh, uh, check out all their work, support their stuff, support their Patreon. Um, yeah, uh, other than that, we'll, we'll have to get you back on for another top five down the road. Uh, this has been fun. I'm sure I'll have some of your, uh, your cohorts on uh, soon. And uh, until uh, next week, or not to timestamp this, uh, you guys have a good weekend. Be safe, love your loved ones, and always protect your neck.